Welcome to a special mailbag episode of the It's a Mimic podcast, where I, Adam, am sitting down with one of our Patreon subscribers, Robert, who has generously become one of our patrons of Metallic Great Worm tier. And that means that he's able to sit down and record an episode with us, and he decided that today we're going to be discussing his homebrew setting, A Domain of Dread. But before we get started, let's get to know Robert a little bit. First of all, hello, Robert. Hello. Um, where are you from? What do you do? Tell us all about yourself. Yeah. So I'm originally from a small town near Savannah, Georgia. Uh, absolutely beautiful. If you ever get a chance to visit Savannah, I highly recommend it. If you can time travel, uh, I would go back to 2018 because there was actually a nerd quarter there. There was a bar called the Chromatic Dragon, which I believe team it was its, uh, its inspiration. And it was amazing. Somebody turned a Baptist church into a gaming hall. They converted a community, uh, college into a maker space it was amazing COVID killed all that so uh go and see where it was but yeah now I'm living uh just outside of Washington DC and I have kind of a strange job I am working for uh the Navy Department of the Navy where I work doing a foreign military sales program of small combatants and unmanned systems and small combatants means any warship uh, 7,000 tons and down, which is an interesting definition of small. And uh, <laughs> prior to this job, I spent uh, a little over a decade in the Navy as a surface warfare officer and just a lot of weapon stuff. So if it's something that goes on a ship, comes out of the Navy and goes boom, or does something interesting, I've, I've dabbled in it. So we should have gotten Terry on this one because he was a tank mechanic in the yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. military. So uh, you guys would have been able to compare notes on things while I sit here and just kind of nod. Dave is our other tactician. He didn't serve or anything, but he's very much a historian and a, a warfare buff. His, I, I know every year for Christmas he gets 10 um, books on actual like real warfare and history and, and um, a lot of ships recently. He was all about the Air Force for a while and it's all naval stuff. For a bit, oh, yeah. So. yeah, yeah. Um, so how did you start playing D and D? Was that before or during your service? It was before. It was uh, actually I, I managed to carbon date this one. It was June twelfth, nineteen ninety three. Holy shit! I got it down to the day. I could probably get it down to the close to the hour because it was uh, the opening weekend of Jurassic Park. And oh hell yeah! Okay, I'm with you. That was that was a good uh, that was a good Saturday. I was visiting my cousins out in uh, Colorado, and we went and saw Jurassic Park. Uh, scared the shit out of me because I was seven years old, and the uh, raptors were scary. And I fell in love, further in love with dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. And then we uh, went back to their house, and we played old school D and D. And I had no idea what was going on because I was seven, and our DM was thirteen. Mm -hmm. I just vaguely remember that the session ended with a uh, critical role that caused a castration of a cyclops uh and that's kind of stuck with me but, uh i kind of picked it back up in high school right yep. there at the edge of uh three and three five like i bought the third edition player's handbook and i think two weeks later the three five one came out but uh played it a bit in high school with friends a lot of homebrew stuff nothing nothing official and then yeah i played everything in high school i played uh a little bit of vampire the masquerade a little bit of Rage the Werewolf, Apocalypse, some of the Star Wars role-playing game, Mutants and Masterminds, L5R, Magic the Gathering, uh, the 3rd edition Rogue Gun setting, and uh, 40k. So uh, not not deep in any of those broad, big broad. Uh, Which one's your favorite? Um, 
out of that group, probably mutants and masterminds. It, right. uh, it was really flexible on the flavor aspect and the mechanics were very simple. So you really could be any kind of superpower being you wanted. And then there was a, uh, there's a system I really enjoyed, but it was just so clunky. It's called Imagine, which uh, it was a high fantasy setting that was in the you know percentile die using the, the the hundreds. But I'm not kidding. If you know if you knew what you were doing, it took about three and a half hours to make a character. That's a bit intense. That feels like it was the early 2000s when everyone was going for more crunch and less flavor. Yeah, it had uh, you know hit point and armor statistics for each part of your body. It oh. had skill lists that were insane i mean i don't think i'm joking when i say apiary and ventriloquism and kite making were individual skills in that game so but i love the attention to detail and whoever wrote that was clearly passionate about it yes but that's a bit deep but i will say uh it kind of broke ground because in you know in the early 2000s it was the first thing i saw where it was like hey it's not just human we have hill humans city humans and blank you know it created that kind of division in the lineages we would say and so you really got some interesting stuff out of it um but yeah i'd say the three games i played at mutants and masterminds were probably the best uh that has been the one that I've always been curious to play, but I don't know anyone who's competent enough with it. Uh, I think Dan played it a decade ago, um, but I was a comic book nerd, right? I, I I never read comics until I was like, God, 22, 23, right. and I worked in a comic book store and fell in love with it. And I'm like, this sounds like my flavor, but yeah. learning a new system with nobody to guide you can be a little bit intense. Right. and. Yeah, that one, again, pretty easy system, really flavorful. You could really come up with anything you wanted for your character, and there were mechanics to support it because it was very simple. But yeah, you're right. If there's nobody who has any experience with it, and I think it got shut down fairly quickly. Uh, I think there was a certain litigious group that decided they didn't want them using almost their IP for things. So yeah, that sounds that sounds familiar. Um, yeah, yeah. So when it comes to D&D, are you a forever DM? Do you play? Uh, I was a forever DM for a, a long time. So in 2018, 2019, uh, some close friends of mine from college started listening to various um, act, uh, live action plays, or God, I'm losing the words, but um, the Adventure Zone, Critical Role, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. And they were looking for somebody to run games. And I was the only person they knew who even knew how to get a hold of dice. And so I ran some homebrew sessions with them. We switched into Storm King Thunder. We switched to Curse of Strahd and we've made it through those. And then somehow that has spiraled into two or three groups, which uh, has narrowed back down. We're we're back down to the one. Um, But one of my players graciously took up the mantle to uh, to get better at it. So literally Tuesday, we finished uh, Lost Minds of Fandelver. Cool. And actually, my wife ran uh, Wild Beyond the Witchlight. So I got to play in both of those. And that was a lot of fun. But it's really like, it's so hard to see brand new DMs and brand new players and keep my mouth shut and let them make their mistakes. It's rough. It's I, I have trouble being a player these days. I need to have familiars and large spell lists and shit just to keep me occupied during other people's. Right. Play, playing L5R with Megan was a lot of fun because I was learning the system still and playing Call of Cthulhu with Dan was a lot of fun because I didn't know the mechanics yet. So I was always looking through a book, but I can understand that's I, Jeff says the same thing. It is hard to be a player once you've DM'd. Um, which of the four you said, Storm King Thunder, Curse of Strahd, Lost Minds, and uh, 
while we on the witch light which one's your favorite out of them that's hard it's i'm probably going to be the least popular person when i say storm kings that's interesting why because it gets so much flack online it gets so much flack online um i think it's weird it's of the lost minds of fendelver doesn't go high enough in the levels and i know that it's designed to be the introductory get you up to speed on dnd yeah but it doesn't do that it 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 kind of bugs me that okay it'll get you up to speed on DD by being a campaign from level one to five but then there's no tutorials in there there's nothing instructing uh in fact uh a friend of mine and i got so fed up with it we started a llc uh where we are now producing tutorial documents for DD that actually have like here's two pages of notes for the dm on how to run a chase sequence with references to the book here's uh, a tutorial moment stop everything pretend combat went bad go into death saves yeah um, and god i love curse of strahd i really do love curse of strahd but it's a hate a love-hate relationship with me um that book is messy it's it's the meme of the three parts of a horse drawing the first one's all right the middle one's photorealistic and the last part's just garbage and you can just feel they ran out of steam yeah. right in Valakai. right after that when it's like you're going to Kresk. oh there's nothing in Kresk. don't worry about that all right you're going here ah, there's nothing there don't worry about that and the I like Storm King's Thunder because while it was a lot of work to do it all of that work and all the material seemed to be most of it was provided in the book uh whereas Curse of Strahd I'm usually having to make up a lot of stuff and if I were to re-homebrew it which is actually what led to me doing my own uh domain of dread concept was uh it I, I doubled the size of it to make it make sense in my head um I ran Curse of Strahd I played through it um but it was very very quick I think we did the entire thing in 20 sessions which was rap wow. um yeah. And, uh, but then I ran the first half of it for Mieka just one-on-one -on -one before every time that she goes away and she's down in Maryland for a number of months, um, mm -hmm. we go back to Barovia and continue that storyline. So she's like really? warping in and out of Barovia. So I've gotten up to Valakai. My yeah. problem with it is that th you're right. The geography doesn't make sense. It doesn't take long enough to get places. It's not oppressive enough. Just, just existing isn't hard. Right. It's it feels like you just hurry up and get to the next set piece and then a lot of the set pieces aren't fleshed out so and th this will probably be the first of several small rants but i'm fascinated by curse of strahd being the flagship being the number one seller for this when it is the least DD &D of all the settings i've seen you have one uniform race essentially through the whole thing where are my dwarves where are my elves where are my yeah. goblins where, where's my stuff you have one shop you can go to. You have one tavern you can go to. You can't have any hijinks. And when you really think about it, your party has no impetus whatsoever to do any side quests at all. It is get the fuck out of Barovia as fast as humanly, dwarvenly, elvenly possible. Oh, hey, can you go check this out? No, fuck that. I don't want to be here. I think the reason why people like it is because it's familiar. You are you know Dracula before you you sit down mm -hmm. to play, and that's what you're playing. And you right. can be a Goliath sorcerer if you want, sure. That's not why you're playing Curse of Strahd. You're playing it because romanticized vampires in a gothic setting, right? And because it's simple touchstones, and Fifth Edition brought in so many new people that yeah. they needed familiar touchstones because Fandelver, Waterdeep, Avernus, these don't mean anything to people, right? Right. 
However, the gothic setting with the where there's one store to go to, there is the one damsel in distress for the whole thing. New yeah. players can understand those tropes and they can jump on it. So that's why I believe it's as popular as it is. And once you have figured it out and run it once, it's easy to run it a second time. Yeah. So which and then is, when you run it the second time, you've completely rewritten half of it. Exactly. I think again, Jeff has run probably three, I think, campaigns there, each one more radically different than the last. And uh, the Curse of Strahd subreddit is just full of add this here, flip the gender there, add add these flavors, here's new NPCs, look at this art, just because everyone is constantly homebrewing to make it make sense. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I used to be very active in that community. I've, I've, I've tailored off since. Um, but you're right. The the touchstones are very familiar and it's, it's very easy to comprehend. But if you're coming in from a, I listened to Critical Role, I listened to the Adventure Zone, I saw these high fantasy hijinks, you're not doing that. You're not seducing the barmaid because yep. then the locals are going to kill you. And you're not, you know, mouthing off to the local lord because he's going to kill you. I mean, uh, but yeah, no, I think I'm on my third or fourth run on Curse of Strahd as well. And it's a it's a great thing to start with. But if you tried to run it rules as written, it would be the most miserable campaign for a new player. Hey, you're on your ninth character. Great. Awesome. You know. And and I we ran into that. As a matter of fact, that campaign that we ran into, Terry was DMing. He wasn't supposed to DM. He found out that he was DMing a week ahead of time um, when the other guy backed out and said, this is too much work. I don't want to do it. And yeah. then shortly thereafter, we lost two players and everyone else looked at each other and said, let's hurry up and get the fuck through this as quickly as possible. So, yeah, I mean, my players are the same. They just want to finish it so they can say they finished it. There's no side quests. There's no interest in doing anything. And uh, yeah, yeah, no, it's it's same. So. And we ran into the problem of what does a barbarian do? We had our barbarian multi-class into sorcerer because he couldn't fucking hit into every anything because everything's ghosts. Everything's got some resistance to the base level of damage that he's trying to do, right? And he's like, all right, fine. Right. Fuck it. Here's well, fire. If I can just find that one magic item that'll let me hit him. Congratulations. There's no magic items. Yeah. There, there, there's like three. I mean, there, there's plenty more, but yeah, it's... uh. And I mean, at the end of the day, it's not even a story about the characters. It's a story about the MacGuffin, because as, yeah. as you pointed out, hey, if you get the sword and the amulet to Ravenloft, it's fucking done. It's over. Yeah. And yeah, there's nothing else to do there. So you know. this is really interesting. I love that you are critical of Curse of Strahd because so few people are. Everybody says they love it. Um, I don't. I like it. But I don't love it. I think I'm critical because it has the potential to be so much more. And it just feels like they didn't try at some parts. And they didn't bother to make some of it make sense. Why is there a death slot in the Amber, Tem Amber Temple? I don't fucking know. They're neat. Yeah. And like, okay. I, I feel like Wizards of the Coast learned the wrong lessons from it. They yeah. said, hey, look how familiar or how popular this is. So we can just do more shit like this, streamline it and get it out as quickly as possible. And right. now we have the poorly fleshed out areas in, um, in well, half of the Ravenloft book is just yeah. look at all of these domains of dread with no, well, like there are two locations, three NPCs and, and a feel, and that's it. There you go. Right. And everything is like that. The, the domains of delight was a PDF <laughs> that wasn't even included in the Feywild book. Right. And so. And that was something I was going to touch on later, but this brings a very good, uh, a good touch point for it is when you read this book, and I'm sure there are others that feel the same, but I've, I've really been delving into this in preparation for the episode. The, the chapters 
do not feel, I know they have multiple authors, but it doesn't feel like there was any attempt other than making sure the font was correct to actually uh, create a uniformity across the, the flavor of the chapters. I legitimately believe that the last time that they had a proper editor and uh, like an editor in chief on a book was Icewind Dale. We haven't seen cohesion anywhere else. I, I can believe that. And, uh, you know, if if you're listening to this and you have the Van Richten's Guide, I challenge you, take the creating a Dread Domain section that we're going to be discussing, where they talk about how to make a Dark Lord and how to make all of that, and then go through and look at the rest of the Dread Domains and see if they use their own rubric at all. Because no, I'll tell they, you, they fucking did. No, and, what, what, what they did was they answered like, one little question they had like three details here or three details there and say and now you have enough information to go back to chapter two and build your own version of this because we're not going to do it for you and i hope as we talk about it we give a little inspiration and we kind of talk people out of what those chapters lean you toward uh kind of my earlier complaint about barovia is you read the this guide and you look at all of these uh, domains of dread for any sort of guidance on what you should do and while the domains are dissimilar enough to give you flavor the dark lords aside from a handful are boring and uniform they are all a fucking person and i mean you read it and it is this is a human being all of them and yeah. oh what did this person do killed a guy killed his brother over a girl this one killed somebody because they were mad this one killed somebody out of confusion and i go and i think my god every single character that's been in any one of my games would have been snatched up into a dark domain by now like <laughs> when i ran storm king's thunder uh that party lost an npc to a stone giant and so they committed genocide on the stone giants and felt they were justified in doing it and so okay you're all in your own domain there you go no, no, that's that's enough if if killing one person gets you in no genocide yep you got your own i mean and so they could have done better i i'm gonna one-up you and i know that it's part of the flavor and it's part of the lore but i'm gonna take it to to another level there are quote-unquote dark powers i'm gonna get into this in a second here when we actually launch into the domains of dread but these dark powers that run the corner of the Shadowfell called ravenloft mm. are so poorly fucking defined that it's not even like if they would give us there are 13 shadowy figures seven of them are vaguely humanoid two of those are vaguely masculine and three are vaguely feminine the others are androgynous this one over here looks like it has two heads and that one has tentacles sometimes when they appear right and but none of them have names and this one's made of shadow and a, sure give us something instead of just saying there are dark powers they they meet once a century to discuss the new transgressions that would need to be caused to banish a dark lord. Something like uh, who are who are these people? Like who are these powers? And in my head, they're technically what undying warlock patrons, uh, great old ones. Yeah. Where do they sit in the power scale? Could they yeah. go toe to toe with Orcus? Or you, you know, like where where are, where are we sitting with these guys? If they're powerful enough for to you know take over Strahd, yeah. Where are they? But then again, our players, you know, are the same level when they're fighting Demogorgon in the end of uh, Out of the Abyss as they are when they're fighting Strahd at the end of Curse of Strahd. And none yeah. of them are ever high level enough. And yet they're managing to do it anyway. So it's there's some problems with fifth edition. There's some problems there's some... with the balance and therefore the narrative. Fifth edition decided that everything is going to end at level 12. Don't bother after that. Yep. And I, I have been. Okay, so when we started a podcast originally, 
Dan and I, before we even, before we ever talked to Terry about it, because Terry actually came to us and said, guys, do you want to do a podcast? And Dan and I looked at each other like, we've been talking about this for three weeks. Yes. So, but before anything, we decided on a podcast because we wanted to build the cred to publish books. And the idea of just making PDFs and dropping them in DMs Guild or Drive Through RPG or wherever, or just sending them out for free on Reddit seemed like a lot of work for a little payoff. And a podcast could, in theory, hit more ears and get us a little bit more talking about the concepts that we wanted to play with and see where we really sat with things. But we decided that we wanted to do three different kinds of books. One was a campaign setting we built our own. Um, one was a um, a uh, like a how to actually build a campaign setting of your own, which is what right. this book, The Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft, is how to build your own campaign setting. And right. it does a pretty good job at the details it says. It's just missing a bunch of details, right? Like, right. and that's the problem is all of these ideas are are great, but they don't connect. There's no through thought. There's no oversight, right? And the yeah. last one was just going to be a bestiary, right? Where we're going to actually, as it stands right now, we have an artist sitting in the wings just drawing different kinds of mimics because we wanted to release a book of mimics. Um, and then I'm like, you know what? We're kind of banging the same drum for 120 pages. Wow. <laughs> we should probably do something else. So uh, actually, uh, your mimic episode inspired me for the mimic I put in here. I don't know if you saw it in the random encounter table. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm working on a one shot murder mystery around that. So, and I am all for a murder mystery, but you know what? Fifth edition doesn't do well. Murder mysteries. Right. There's no guidance, and that's the big complaint about the um, the Dungeon Master's Guide is that it doesn't teach. It shows, right? And this is why it's a mimic has been successful is because we look at what exists and say all right reverse engineer what are we getting out of this shit because there's precious little here yeah and uh like i said earlier my a friend of mine and i are doing the same thing without a podcast or any sort of platform whatsoever and in the year of releasing uh, to be fair only a handful of things on uh, dm's guild we've made a staggering 54 dollars so uh but by the time this comes out our next thing will be out and hopefully maybe People will be more interested, but it's, uh, it's what you're talking about. I mean, yeah, tutorials on just how to do things, where to find things in the book, because the book is so fucking poorly put together. And whoever made the index for the books, they need to be dragged out in the street and shot. Uh, <laughs> that drives me like I'm not an organizational guy. I work very hard to be organized. You fucked up. You done fucked up on these. So I, uh, I am an organizational guy is what I do for a living. And it's also what calms me when I'm stressed out, I will sit down at the spreadsheet and reschedule next month's recordings that calms me the fuck down. But so that's, I actually took that into account. So when I sent you the uh, kind of a little bit of the write up of my ideas, I sat there and said, okay, this makes sense to me, but I know Adam's an organization make this organized. And like, <laughs> here we go. So uh, <laughs> I, I appreciate that. But I believe me, if I, if I can run three years of a podcast with Dan, then I can I can sift through anybody's notes. <laughs> well, um, no, honestly, my favorite book in fifth edition is uh, hands down the Eberron book, followed yeah. shortly by the Ravnica book. Um, but as great as those are in some places, they are shit shows. For where do you get the storyline of the of the campaign setting, the history right. of the world, and they do this in every one of the books. Here's a brief history. It's seven pages long. By the way, we will sprinkle the rest of the details of everything you need to know as we go through the, the story. And they keep presenting every one of these books like they are a story, even the campaign settings. 
and not like these are tools for a dungeon master to use. Right. right? And so I don't know, man, I guess it sells. So they, so they like it, but yeah. So if I played an Eberron campaign, that would be my favorite. Eberron's been my favorite setting uh, since, since it came out. And uh, in addition to this homebrew that I'm working on, uh, I've got a bonkers uh, West Marches time hopping uh, anti AI Eberron campaign. That's fun. You're in into the my mind, the, yeah, the Warforged, uh, the Lord of Blades, in my idea, when he wants to end the war, nope, he's he is an AI and he doesn't want to end the war. He wants to ascend to be Primus and he is going to break the fucking universe to try to do it. So I, I love that. He should have a domain of dread. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so many of these, so many of the people in, in so many of these campaigns should be like, hey, stop that. No, no, here's, here's your prison. And it's back yeah. to kind of the Dark Lords and to kind of get back on it with it is I know that when people are making domains of dread, they think, oh, I'm going to make something creepy and scary. And it's like, I got it. It is creepy and scary. This is a prison for a being that is so dangerous that otherworldly, you know, God level creatures said, I don't need to just kill you because you might reincarnate. I need to take your thread completely out of the tapestry of fate and throw it over here in the scrap box by itself. And I've got a whole wall of scrap boxes to make sure you don't contaminate anything. And they shall do it. Okay, so here we go. Here's what I posit. The quote-unquote dark powers, all of that is availed. This is not official by any means. This is my own headcanon here. Yeah. Uh, all of that is just availed to hide the fact that uh, Mordenkainen, Bigby, uh, the, the circle of eight plus Elminster and a handful of others from around get together and say all right it's been a hundred years what asshole has stepped up let's knock him down again right so you said you're a comic book guy that's borderline uh marvel illuminati yeah, yeah. absolutely it is and yeah. you can imagine that it will go just as poorly and hopefully have a world war hulk come at the end yes. so uh but i will say this looking at that and then looking at the ones they present apparently none of them give a shit about dwarves there's not a single fucking dwarf in Van Richten's. And I'm sure they've gotten up to some shit underneath the mountain. Uh, I will tell you, there are some, there are precious few dwarves at all in 5th edition. Dwarves show up as, like, bartenders, miners, and then every once in a while, you have an abandoned stronghold. Right. And other than that, it's Duragar. And somehow the Dragonborn outnumber every other fucking race based on character, or uh, player picks. So, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> we, we, right. we could go on a rant. Um, I, the last thing, okay, so here's my last question for you before we get off on this, uh, Domains of Dread tangent here, um, and do what we're supposed to do today. What's your favorite class and playable race? So, uh, I said earlier, you know, I'm, I'm a forever DM, but I'm really into the healer support class. That's where I, I enjoy being. I don't necessarily like being a life cleric. I like being some other form of support and, I'll admit I like to exploit those mechanics they didn't think about. So in my uh, in my recent just ending uh, Minds of Fandover game, I was playing a the healer support as an artillerist artificer. I was a uh, old church lady dwarf uh, named Meemaw who uh, I, I think I made the the cannon once the entire game. I was using that heal bot. I was keeping my party up. That thing was brutally overpowered. You know, I took the chef beat so that I could <laughs> maximize the uh, the the short rests. Um, yeah. And when I'm running a game, I my players never think about healers. They don't. And so I need to give them a safety net for the first three or four levels. And so the 
sidekick of the DMPC is always a healer. Um, my absolute favorite. I'm, I'm running him now in my Curse of Strahd game. I have a grung sidekick named Jub Jub, who none of them can speak to him because he's a fucking grung. Nobody speaks grung, but he's the he is the party's healer. And being that he's a grung, oh, he's going to cast Cure Wounds, make a constitution saving throw because <laughs> you're being healed, but you're also being poisoned. Yeah, I and love it's it. just hilarious to see them way out in their head. How much do I need those hit points right now? So uh, I'm I'm big into the the healer, but I mean just anything interesting. I think my next character is going to be a uh, wild magic barbarian who thinks he's a warlock, but he's just so fucking dumb. I just got rid of my wild magic barbarian that Dave was playing it, and uh, it was a lot of fun. It was absolutely wild. Yeah. Um, and uh, but no, I'm with you for the healer. My longest living character that that I have played in the last decade was a dwarven life cleric, and I got mm -hmm. so much out of that. So, yeah, yeah. So I feel that as a as a DM. Although honestly, if I were to play now, it would be a bard just for the support spells. So uh, druid. yeah, no, I. I before Mima, I was a bard, and I was a College of Eloquence bard. And I, we realized that when you have an automatic 18 or higher on persuasion and deception checks, you've broken the fucking game. Yes. And so I had to give him up, but he was a, uh, I think I mentioned it on the Discord, he was not a performer or a singer or a musician. He was a newscaster bard. Yeah. And so I went in as this, you know, just super stereotypical, like the family guy, news guy, news anchor. And he was a shit ton of fun. <laughs> but so wildly powerful. Yeah. Like bards are just so incredibly powerful. Um, I, would I, have, love I have three out of my six players have taken levels in bard now. Holy shit. Yeah. No, a uh, uh, couple of levels bard and then life cleric. And then you're talking about your short rests are your max hit points back every time. I mean, it's it's just it would be uh, an incredible support class. And as a DM, I would absolutely hate that person. And they would be the target of every single fucking attack. Like, oh, you're the one keeping everybody alive. Yeah. So. Well, again, I just got rid of my Twilight Cleric for exactly the same thing. Right. Like yeah. it was a it was not on purpose. I, I covered all that in the False Hydra episodes. Right. But like Love those episodes, honestly, uh, good, because it was <laughs> It was me ranting into the mic. <laughs> yeah, no, I can imagine your face just getting redder and redder. I think I, 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 I was actually mentioned on one. I, when you were talking about when they cut down the bell, oh, I had to turn the podcast off because I was so angry about that. <laughs> I, I, oh, my God. My players have done so many things just like that. Of, we yeah. we ended the session with Dan saying, can I catch the bell? I'm a furball. I, I, my strength counts as, you know, a size category larger. And I looked at him, I said, no. He goes, but how much does the bell weigh? Too much, Dan. Everybody go home. I'm yeah. done with you. We're, we're going to take a break. I need to figure yeah. out what to do now. It's, uh, you seen Tim Burton's Batman? It's that fucking bell. You're not catching <laughs> Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, let's jump into, uh, speaking of Tim Burton's Batman, let's talk about Domains of Dread. Yes. Because that is a setting I would absolutely fucking play in. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. You want to talk about uh, a celebrity DM that would blow your fucking mind? I would put Tim Burton and then uh, Jim Carrey. But I think Jim Carrey would be scarier. He would be terrifying. I think so. Honestly, yeah. the one that I would not the person to run the game, but the person to build the world. I want Guillermo del Toro to give me a campaign setting. Yeah, you can't see it, but I got a. No, I love Hellboy and I love what he did with that. Was Robert Rodriguez? Wait, no, that was, that was Del Toro. Yeah, oh, yeah, that was that was Del Toro. Robert Rodriguez. Um, 
He wasn't. No, he did uh, Sin City. Yes. Uh, yeah. But uh, Del Del Toro doing a Fay Wilds would be would be wild. I mean, that's what Pan's Labyrinth was, and how dark was that? That was great. yes, yes. And you know, did it happen? Did it not? I, all right. Um, <laughs> okay. So yeah. All right. So domains of dread. Uh, for those of you who are listening, who've been confused about what the fuck are these guys talking about, uh, you know, in and among the rants of what books suck. Um, the Domains of Dread uh, breaks down kind of like this. The Shadowfell is uh, a mirror plane. It is a nigh-infinite plane of existence that is a dark reflection of the material plane, but there is one corner of it that is shrouded in mists. And in some places, the mists part, and there are small pockets of absolute misery within. I want you to know that this took me two Shadowfell episodes and... Uh, and about an hour and a half of prep to parse this down into something bullet point that they should have just done at the beginning of this damn book. But anyway, Um, so in the Shadowfell live these nigh eternal creatures known only as the dark powers, which we've already spoken about in this episode that are just very generic. They exist out there. We don't know how many or what they look like or who they are, but they have passed judgment on beings of cruelty misery and anguish and have trapped them all in infinite loops within prisons which is what these clearings in the mists are strahd von zarevic is the first such prisoner but there are now countless others it literally says countless in the book so um these this corner of the shadowfell is infinitely large as well um these prisoners themselves are called dark lords so we have dark powers and dark lords uh but here's the thing the Dark Lords that are tormented in eternal horror and despair, they don't realize that they're prisoners or that they're stuck in infinite loops. This isn't like Groundhog Day. They're just living every day like it's the first day. And those prisons that they're stuck in are the size of kingdoms and countries and whole geographical landscapes. And they are each suited to the nature of the Dark Lord, acting as a reflection of the Dark Lord themselves. These prisons are called Domains of Dread, and that's what we're talking about today. But the worst part is, and this is why I don't think necessarily that the Dark Powers are benevolent, the Dark Lords aren't alone. When the Domains of Dread are created, other innocent souls are pulled into the realm and they live terrified and macabre versions of normal life under the influence of the Dark Lord that they're imprisoned with. Some people can enter these Domains of Dread, but it's a lot easier to enter than it is to escape. Entering the Mists to leave will probably drive you mad and definitely get you lost. The Dark Lords don't want to see you escape their realms of influence, and the Dark Powers that oversee everything take a somewhat more passive role in keeping you in the realms by setting the environment against you to keep you there. So, let's talk about Dark Lords for a second, because according to the book, Ben Richten's Guide to Ravenloft, the first thing you need to do when creating a Domain of Dread is understand your Dark Lord. It's their memories, their wants and needs, their flaws and misdeeds that influence the nature of the realm. The book recommends that you set the Dark Lord up to be a twisted reflection of the party members. For example, if one character loves high society and formal balls, then the Dark Lord twists and exaggerates that for him or herself, holding long daily courts and punishing anyone who does not follow etiquette perfectly, even at the nightly parties that are mandatory to attend. It's just shit like that. So 
If they love to drink, then the Dark Lord has alcoholism be rampant. If they love to have gladiatorial combat to prove their might, well, then it's a battle to the death and horrible body shit happens to people. And and we have, even the survivors are amputees and the realm is full of them. Like, it's it's brutal, twisted, and the more intense, the better. So while the book itself is very lacking in a lot of different ways, they do have some great questions in the book to kind of jog memory and give a little bit of inspiration for people. When it comes to creating a Dark Lord, they want you to look at the past life of the Dark Lord. So here are the questions they ask. Where was the Dark Lord before the mists took them? Who was the Dark Lord's family? How was the Dark, how was the Dark Lord's family oppressed, oppressive, or both? What was their childhood like? Whom did they care about? Who cared about them? Who hurt them? Who respects or loves them? And whose respect and love do they crave? What do they value? These are very important motivations, not just for Dark Lords, but for literally every character, for literally everything you would ever write. If you are looking to write a novel, these are great questions to ask. If you're looking to build a D&D character, these are great questions to ask. This should be part of character creation. So then it says that you should give them an ideal, which is essentially just an unflinching line that they will not cross. Under no circumstances will I allow anyone to blank, whatever that is, right? So that's what their ideal should be. Their bond, which is what or who they want, and their flaw, which is what negative emotion or destructive behavior always undermines their goals. You don't have to write paragraphs for this. In fact, simpler is better because when you have broad overarching um, sentences just say like always or never, this gives you the rigidity needed to create a Dark Lord. So there is a D10 table of fatal flaws on page 40 of the book. Do you have a D10 there, Robert? We can roll it and see what we come up with just as an example. I do. I have rolled two. Two. Others' concerns bore me, and I would rather have my lessers handle everything possible. (laughs) I like that. That's really flavorful. I can make a dozen characters based off that that would all be wildly different. The 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 random tables are fun, but it doesn't tell you why they chose these things to to be included in the random table. Yeah, so, they need to they need to elaborate on what that why that's a flaw. Yes, and this is the the problem is they give you kind of uh, one paragraph about it, but it's like f- three sentences, and then a bunch of examples, and they leave it up to you to kind of reverse engineer it. Yeah. So depending on the person, they won't see that as a flaw. No. No, there are people in my life that wouldn't see that as a flaw. Um, Middle managers. (laughs) um, The other thing is that you should remember that the dark powers consider that these dark lords um, are corrupted beyond redemption. And this is a big theme here. So what evil deeds has your dark lord committed? When fleshing out the victims of these deeds, you have to make them sympathetic, tragic, and heartbreaking. And remember that the dark lord will never, ever, ever redeem themselves or show real regret they may feel self-pity but they will not regret the actions they did and how it impacted other people the questions that they ask in the book for this um which helped kind of give you a direction to head in but again this is their version of explaining i think they're using these lists as a way to say hey this is how you do it but they never get into why and that's the problem so Mm -hmm. What was the first depraved act that the Dark Lord chose to commit, and how did their ideal 
encourage them down this path? Was the Dark Lord rewarded or celebrated for their evil? Did that reaction encourage greater crimes? Were these rewards earned or justified? Did the Dark Lord repeat or escalate their wickedness to obtain something they selfishly desire? And there are four more beyond that. Um, the most important one for me is when and how did these acts attract the attention of the Dark Powers? Well, for fuck's sakes, tell us who the Dark Powers are and I might be able to give you that answer. So... Yeah. In order to make a Dark Lord feel legendary, they have to be supernatural somehow. There needs to be a physical or magical trait that they have that reflects their evil. And this was your complaint a little while ago, Robert, was the fact that they're all just people. They're all just like humans or close enough to it that it's very easy to understand what's happening. Mm -hmm. um, instead of all of the other wild amount of creatures that exist across all of the different books that we just didn't bother to get into, right? The majority mm -hmm. of the Dark Lords presented in this book are just humans so they do give us a d10 monstrous transformation table on page 41 we want to roll another d10 and see what kind of weird monstrous transformation that, that we can come up with i rolled one which actually uh dark lord loses their voice their words now carve themselves on their skin as lingering scars that's really cool and really flavorful when am i going to use that why uh, why is that a monstrous transformation that reflects who they are and and the deeds that they committed? It's it's not, and it's a little bit creepy, and it's a little bit body horror, and, you know, okay, overlapping scars, and they're speaking, and you got to make your perception rolls to see what they're saying, and maybe it's a different language. I could see maybe if you fed that back into the fatal flaws of I let my lessers handle everything, and then that creates that level of interpretation and confusion there. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's a level of synergy between these two tables that I don't believe the authors intended. Yeah, well, clearly. The, these random tables, I feel like were not, they were each created by somebody else. Maybe two or three people wrote a couple of entries and threw it at, at the wall just to have variety, which is great. But again, you need to explain to us, the DMs, why we give a shit about this, right? right? Um, it's interesting because reading the paragraph for Monstrous Transformations, they it says they have features that make them similar to familiar monsters. Just make them monsters. I don't know why we, we took all these extra steps to make them humanoids. I mean, um, it almost says every single one they show, they say, oh, this is statistics of a ghost, statistics of a mummy lord, statistics yeah. of creature in monster manual. Just, all right. Just make them that, right? Yeah. And so... The other thing about it here, which is weird because they litter this through the text all the way through, but it's never brought up and it, it's counter to the lore, is it says maybe they even gain supernatural abilities via a pact with the dark powers or upon arriving in their domain. What pact are they making with the dark powers that don't know the dark powers exist? That's right. in the lore. So like this is this is where there's no real oversight here. Yeah. So upon completion of this irredeemable act that they've got to do, the mist surrounds the dark lord and drags them into the Shadowfell, along with their surroundings and the denizens of those surroundings. That's in the lore. Everything gets twisted and corrupted, and the loop begins, without anyone having any recollection of the fact that this isn't how life is supposed to be. So you could talk about pacts all you want, but they're not going to remember that they even made a pact if they did in the first place. I would just strike that out for the most part. It feels like it's Somebody had a really cool idea that didn't make it, and then they forgot to edit it out. There was there was a whiteboard, exactly. 20 feet wide and 10 feet tall, and everybody wrote all their cool ideas on it. And somebody went through and said, okay, where can I put this? 
Uh, I don't know. It goes here. All right, fine. Fuck it. Whatever. A lot of the time, I feel like it was just copied and pasted out of an email chain, right? So let's jump into the domains themselves now, because this is, honestly, I like making a bad guy. Villains are fun, but I'm all about the domain, and that's that's why we're here today. Each mm-hmm. domain of dread serves two narrative purposes. Echo the irredeemable act forever and ever, and provide eternal suffering. The place of the deed should be present within the domain of dread, and there should be details and reflection of it littered throughout the land so if it takes place on a battlefield or in a back room of a bar or wherever that location has to be within the domain of dread but that feeling of the battlefield should be everywhere that back room should be everywhere the the smell of it the taste of of the air on your lips the what colors how bright is it who's there how are they breathing do other does everyone else have to breathe in this manner now when they get upset there's a long list of questions, and they're actually pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, what does the act sound like from a distance or to someone in the next room? And then you would have that echo throughout the land, or you would hear it over and over again uh, as clues to what happened. Um, are words spoken? Are they relevant to the scene, or they're unrelated? And would you see or hear those words over and over again uh, throughout the domain? Uh, before the unfortunate scene happens, what warnings were missed or foreshadowed? And will they still be there? Right. These are all really cool ideas. And there's a whole lot more here, like shapes and symbols, what smells, uh, does the light or darkness hide or reveal anything? There's a bunch of shit here. It's pretty good. It's how I would I would look at this for have building a murder mystery as well. Yes. Right. And using foreshadowing, maybe if, if I know it's gonna be mediums or anything. Um, remember for the eternal suffering part, it's based essentially upon six basic tenets. The first one is anyone who dies in the domain is reincarnated there, doomed to repeat the cycle. The second one is the Dark Lord is actively trying to corrupt another to follow in their footsteps or to understand and sympathize with them, but no matter what, it will never work. It's doomed to fail. The third one is echoes of past tragedies are always raining down upon the Dark Lord, keeping them in a foul mood and making them feel like everything is about to spiral out of their control. This makes them secretly desperate. The fourth one is the Dark Lord will never learn from his or her mistakes. The fifth is there is a symbolism and metaphor everywhere as constant reminders of the past and the irredeemable act. And the last one is the bond, that thing that they want most, is always near, but they will never get it. For Curse of Strahd, for example, spoiler alert, that's Irina, right? Always there, and he can never get it. When it comes to the domain itself, specificity is the key. Create a number of specific locations. Populate these locations with memorable, fleshed-out NPCs who are in the midst of their own struggles. But most importantly, then, normalize it. So all of the citizens trapped in the domain of dread think that the whole thing is absolutely normal and nothing is out of the ordinary. For example, yes, the bloody handprint that appears on the windows every night at exactly 3.13 a.m. are terrifying and no one wants to talk about them. And everyone is scared and they get a cold shiver down their back. But everyone knows they're there. They've always been there. And no one thinks to ever wonder why or maybe how to stop it. They just know that that is the thing that happens. And they move on. When it comes to I, I th- the best example of that in Curse of Strahd, like right top of my head, is those meat pies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for people listening, spoiler alerts for Curse of Strahd. Uh, yeah. Probably. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, when it comes to cultural specifics, the book asks a few pointed questions, and I, I like them. It's a good place to start if you're going to create any sort of village or civilization. Um, 
What does the culture fear? What do they consider taboo? What is scarce and how do inhabitants compensate for the scarcity? Who or what does the culture inflict harm upon? How does the culture treat outsiders? What values does the culture hold that not everyone abides by? How is the culture exaggerated, a parody or otherwise unrealistic? How does it prevent change? And how does everyone else feel about the Dark Lord? Focus on the human drama parts of the domain and not the nitty-gritty details when coming up with this shit. For example, it doesn't matter what this specific wording of the old treaty says, it just matters that the neighboring towns hate each other for breaking the treaty, which no one seems to have read. Emotion overrides logic in Ravenloft. Make sure that you fill the area with monsters and creatures besides humanoids. Remember, the name of the game here is horror. And as much as we have giant swaths of this book and sections based on the horror, they don't seem to really dig into it besides two or three examples, and then they move on. We have books full of monsters. Lean into that shit. And then, of course, we have my favorite aspect of the whole damn thing, which is the mists themselves. Flavor the mists to work in favor of the domain of dread. What shapes, sounds, and smells appear within the mists? Do the mists behave in some predictable way? What stories do these domains people ascribe to the mists? Do they ascribe a personality to them, or do they even acknowledge them at all? Where do the mists appear beside the domain's borders? How does a Dark Lord use the mists to close their domain's borders? And this one annoys me because it shouldn't be the Dark Lord that does that. It should be the Dark Powers. Yes. So, um, and that pretty much brings us to everything that you need to know about developing a Domain of Dread. So we've done the Dark Lord and the Domain, but there's still a little bit more, and that is the idea of putting adventures in it now. And this is where the whole fucking thing falls apart in this book. There are a couple of bullet points I pulled out of it, but honestly, the gaps are way bigger than the, the details that they've given us. So they do say, have a time-sensitive plot hook to drag the party into the machinations of the Domain of Dread? I'm sorry, do that for every campaign you do. That should be literally every session. Have plot hooks. Making it time-sensitive is just a really good tool. You should build evocative and extreme locations. We are playing a fantasy game. This is not 1920s Cthulhu. They should always be evocative and extreme. There should be fantasy somewhere, littered throughout. Populate the area with the Dark Lord's enemies, allies, and victims. This is no-brainer to me. Everyone should have an opinion of the Dark Lord, even if they don't say it out loud. For set-piece NPCs, give them details, emotions, or intentions that are unmistakable and intense. You want them to be remembered. You don't want them to blend into the background. Eventually, have the Dark Lord take an interest in the party. This feels like a balancing act that every DM is going to have to do differently depending on the party makeup, the Dark Lord, the domain itself, the other citizens, what the Dark Lord wants, what's the immediate threat, what's the plot. There's so much behind that. And they give us a D8 table on page 44 and that's it. And uh, to interject there, if you uh, if you go on the Curse of Strahd subreddit, uh, I would say... A, a surprising number of them uh, of the the posts there are going to be either when do I introduce Strahd? Yeah, because if you run that book, rules is written, and your party takes the the right or the certain paths, they will meet him for the first time when they're there to kill him. Good yep. open the book, and then the, you get a one throwaway line of he might invite them to dinner. Oh, great! This is an amazing set piece. This is an amazing thing. We're gonna have him to dinner, and then you flip to that section of the book, and it's two fucking sentences, and there's nothing about it. It doesn't get much better in Ravenloft either, right? Yeah. In the book, um, Ben Rickman's Guide to Ravenloft, like mm -hmm. 
Here, uh, do you have a D8 there, Robert? Do you want to roll on the Dark Lord connections table? That would be a three, a natural three. Uh, Dark Lord and an adventurer share camaraderie over a mutual ideal. That is so fucking vague, I might as well be in a fortune cookie. D the Dark Lord needs to have already met them or done his, some sort of research and even know who the fuck they are. I mean... Yep. Yeah, that's that's not that's not a connection. That's the outcome of of an encounter, right? Yeah, like you're not giving me anything new with this. What's uh? We also have Dark Lord interactions on on uh, page forty five, which is another D eight table. If you want to roll again, a five. The Dark Lord meets the adventurers at a public market, festival, temple, or library, surrounded by a crowd of innocents. Sure, I could fucking write that. That's like, why is this taking up pages in in the book, right? right. And there's there's a lot of that shit in here. Yeah. They meet them there, and then what? Exactly. Why? Why are they there? What right. do they want? So, yeah. and here's the thing, and I, and I get that it's got to be a little bit vague because God knows, even when you know who the players are and you know what the character builds are, they are hard to predict. So I understand that you've got this limitation um, when you're trying to write a book like this, but you have got to give us more than that shit right so and and on that i feel like this book puts too much on the characters yeah 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 hands down yeah um and they leave it up to the dm to be almost reactionary like you build a set and then you let the players come in and stomp their feet and and yeah. and wreck house and then you you end it and that's it and which actually brings us to the last bit Finally, how does the cycle end in a victory for the players? What do they need um, to escape? Do they need to defeat the Dark Lord? Is escape the end or is it just the next step? So it asks a bunch more questions. Can the Dark Lord die permanently? We already know the answer to that. The answer is no, it's an infinite loop. So um, under what circumstances might they return? It's an infinite loop. Dawn the next day like, or give them two months of peace and then they return um, like Sauron right in lord of the rings we're like we can feel the evil building and then boofy's there again right. uh does a new dark lord rise no it would be a different fucking domain of dread if it was a new dark lord does and, the domain permanently dissolve that's up to the dark powers not your players right, right. And, and and honestly you you actually asked a question uh that so you said you know what do the players need to do to win yeah and the the book actually you know if if you start parsing it of players versus characters Mm -hmm. characters winning is them just getting out yeah the players winning is and they achieved something and that's probably one of the you know one of the top complaints with curse of strahd is hey you did it you killed him it's not permanent he's back tomorrow you just had however many weeks of fucking misery for whatever reason enjoy your ptsd and you're back in wherever so i think that's actually what they should have done here is they should have said hey define victory for your players yep and then use your characters to facilitate that victory so that you have a fulfilling narrative i honestly believe that if you're going to do a dread domain it is a great act of your three act play which is your entire storyline for your campaign right and it believe me when i say i think it's freaking phenomenal and it should be it's massive memorable multi-session lasts over a year in real time uh, like location and set piece, and it's so much fun to do this. However, it can't be the be all and end all. That's where Curse of Strahd fell apart because we finished it, looked at each other, and said, "Now what?" Right. It's and like e even like I've run Death House and I've run House of Lament now, and everybody looks at me and says, "Is it the sorry?" So we're in Barovia now. 
is, was was that the intro like there's no there's no fluidity there's no continuity there right it's just it's just a neat thing death house should be a set piece that you just have to do in curse of Strahd instead yes. of the intro yes and and I think they in this book they should have given you two pages maybe uh, I'll admit I have not covered to cover read the book recently but they should have given you two three pages of how to use a domain of dread as a tool in your campaign yeah put the fucking MacGuffin here uh yeah. oh you you need the obsidian blade of Karatush to kill that thing and it was last seen in the hands of so and so and he disappeared in the mists but nobody knows oh ask that guy and then you're there for a tier you go through all your bullshit you get the thing and you come out because hey it's a great tool for that but level one to 10 level one to 20 if you're truly playing the horror aspect fuck it's a grind and your mm-hmm. players don't want to be there anymore i ran my last campaign they started off at level 12 and they went to level 20 of essentially a dark domain i didn't call it that but the idea here is that the goddess of death is coming in and just totally fucking up this it was a jungle riverland that's got these heavy obscuring mists and it was pirates in the mists and floating cities but everything undead is rising and it was a freaking grind the dark fantasy um section in Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft I find is so vague and generic it's not useful it yeah. describes literally every sort of dark or evil kind of uh, setting or scenario right. however my guys just lived through that. They did it for a year and a half, and they they turned me afterwards and said that was a fucking grind. I don't want to do it again. We need to be heroes right. now, right? And it, so, it's, like, that's, comes, yeah. Sorry, yeah. It's just exactly what you said. It's a great place to visit. I wouldn't want to live there. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. No, I don't want to live in Baltimore. Um, but <laughs> uh, sorry if anybody lives in Baltimore, but your that town is awful to me. Um, anyways, uh. Yeah, it's a great piece. It's a great thing to work in. And it's it is so difficult to balance horror where you are scaring the characters, but engaging the players. And a lot of the horrors that we see presented in the book are not actually horror. It's extreme discomfort. It's yeah. they don't want to, it's, it's anxiety. I don't mind being scared. I don't want to be anxious for three, five, eight hours for 30 fucking sessions. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, honestly, I think about, it's a difference between watching, there are a lot of good horror movies out there, and I I love the horror genre, there are a lot of good, there's a lot of bad, but there are different genres of horror movies, and some of the ones that are are really, really good, that people tout as being just the best, the pinnacle of, whether it's um, It Follows, or uh, The Exorcist, or The Babadook, these are just anxiety-inducing, holding your breath for two hours, and they ramp it up. And I get the same emotional reaction from Requiem for a Dream or Uncut Gems or anything else. Yes. And it's a different feel than actual legitimate horror. And I and we call it psychological horror or metaphorical horror, but it's the same thing. You can't live there for too long. It's, it's body horror. This is torture porn. That's all yes. it is. Yeah. Um, and, and body yeah. horror is the fly. The fly is body horror. Right. It's not it's not Saw. Saw is torture porn. Yeah. Um, I thought uh hey, real quick, what's your top three horror? I'm not gonna ask you what your number one is. What's your top three, if you had to guess? Oh, uh, it depends on my damn mood. Um, honestly, right. uh right now my my top three horror would be The Exorcist always reigns supreme for me. Um yeah. the nineties miniseries 
it with Tim Curry um, was a seminal moment in my life. I did not see part two and didn't know part two existed yeah. uh, for about three or four years. So I thought that the clown just fucking won. <laughs> like yeah. um, that, that was a rough one for me. Um, so here's my, my outside of the box answer. I low key love the movie mama, which was yeah not a horror movie in a traditional sense. I consider it to be a dark fairy tale. Yes. Yes. So, I, I agree. Very, very well done too. Uh, look i loved it follows i've got a special hatred for the conjuring and the the insidious and sinister movies like i'm not wild on ghost stories and haunted houses but man i 13 ghosts came out when i was like 15 or something and i ate the shit out Uh, of that when that came out like yes god i watched that about two weeks ago (laughs) love that film and the that film did not do credit to the lore that went into that film the like reading all the stories and going into like that ancient fucking uh netscaper uh geo website and finding yeah. oh these are who these ghosts are oh that's incredible yeah like yeah. i low-key love the blair witch project and i know that that's a controversial controversial take these days but like i think that that was a beautifully crafted with almost no lore they made right. you desperate for more the entire right. movie and then left you just gut punched at the end of it. Please explain it because if you do that, it'll make it okay. If you don't do that, I don't know what happened, and that's the fear for me. Well, that's why the first Alien movie was, in my opinion, so great, and Aliens was such a piece of shit. And again, I'm probably alone in this. I'm just on record as hating James Cameron, and I've I've got my reasons. I think we've actually had that back and forth on the Discord. Uh, <laughs> Probably. I will rant about that at every opportunity. Yeah. So, James Cameron is a cinematographer um, and uh, a shit director. I love what he's what he's done for the technology of filmmaking. Um, yeah. I will not watch Avatar movies. Uh, I mean, if you've seen Fern Gully, you've seen the best Avatar. And <laughs> Fern Gully was untouchable. That's fucking perfect. I mean absolutely robin williams is yeah yes that movie was anyway yeah like and it's not just that it's dances with wolves right is it's the same story there it's pocahontas it's i'm i'm done james cameron has not had an original thought in his brain except how can i make this camera do this thing in this interesting way and i appreciate that or look at this cool titanic shit and i'm all about that too so fair um anyway (laughs) domain of dread yeah back to this so we've got when we started talking about the, your domain of dread, you you sent me a document and it had in it kind of what are the the horror genres that you are most intrigued by or that this your domain of dread is going to lean into. Just spoiler alert: you've done a lot of the legwork on this already, and you're just like fleshing out the final details here. But you said dark fantasy with a little bit of body horror, a little bit of folk horror, and a little bit of ghost stories. Yeah. I then went and I looked up all of the different <laughs> entries and I read through them very, very carefully um, in Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft for dark fantasy, body horror, folk horror, and ghost stories. I have to say, I appreciate folk horror getting its own category. Unfortunately, yes. it was very, very weak. All of these entries are. They burned a couple of pages on yeah. almost nothing, just like random tables of shit that you might do in here. But if you're going to do cosmic horror or psychological horror or or slasher horror, you already know the shit that they're telling you in this book, right? So, right. And they really should have put uh, Dark Fantasy at the very end and said, every fucking thing else. Yeah. Catch all. Uh, by yeah. the way, that's going to be all the ones you do. 
basically. So honestly, I can't think of a single domain of dread in this book that is not at least half dark fantasy. That's right. what the, we're playing D and D. It's dark fantasy. Yes. Right? yes. So anyway. Anyway, I remember doing the legend lore for this book and being super excited about it. And I do love the uh, bestiary at the end of it. I think it's great. No. The, the entries they gave us were worth the price tag on the book for me. I have gotten so much out of those. However, yeah. oh, and the House of Lament, weirdly fun. And you can run it yeah. three different times, three different ways. And uh, that's good, too. So, um, however, this this section is essentially garbage. It's the same thing as the Spelljammer ships. Right. Like it's just I don't know why they bothered to waste these like this many pages on this shit when they could have we could do the rest of this. I I could go until dawn on my problems with spell jammer. <laughs> and again, I'm a ship guy. I've yeah. spent years of my life on a ship. Every fucking ship in here is the same. It drives me crazy. Yeah. Except except for the shape of it, they are the same. They all have crossbows. They all have little shitty catapults. Cool. My Mind Flayer is using a crossbow. The first time we ever met Mind Flayers in 5th edition, you get a laser gun. Or no, not yeah. even 5th edition, in D&D, yeah. like original D&D. You get a Where, laser gun. Like, Where's my ship-mounted uh, cannon of magic missile to fuck that guy up at a distance? In, in, okay, anyways, yeah. Domains of Dread. <laughs> anyway, Domains of Dread. So, now we have context on how to build a dark lord a domain of dread and an adventure within it let's talk about yours give us a give us a breakdown of what your domain of dread looks like who's your dark lord let, 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 do you want to go through the dark lord first or the domain first because the two of them are pretty symbiotic like you could start from either end of this right you could yeah. either i think you could build a really cool domain and then construct a dark lord to fit it yeah or you could do it the way that they say in the book I, I think the first is better. I think creating the, the domain. Uh, and I say that because if you go by the way the book is, uh, I, I honestly, I hate the way they start with Dark Reflections because it starts with look at your characters and create reflections of that. And what if we don't you, know who the characters are? We're, you're starting a level one campaign. They have no fucking clue who these characters are. Yep. How am I creating a reflection of them? And, you know, I've gotten one person who's given me three pages of backstory. I've gotten one who's given me 30 pages of backstory. I have one who says, my character doesn't have a memory. They like hitting things. Fucking cool. Uh, how am I creating a reflection of that? And then, and this is my, my bigger concern with that is a lot of players put some aspect of themselves into their character. Yeah. I want to be this person. I feel like this is who I am. I want this to be the exemplar of my positive attributes. And then to take, as they say, and create a dark reflection of that and show how it can be villainous could be a very painful thing for that player, and they could feel called out. And so I think you should make your Dark Lord and your world agnostic of the characters. And I agree with you 100%, except if at the end of Curse of Strahd, when you're all said and done, and the thing that you needed to get was, uh, you thought it was all about Strahd? No, it was the Sword of Cass. Right. So now you've got that and you move on to Vecna's dark domain for levels 12 to 20. Yeah. Then you've spent all this time with the characters up until now. You can kind of hand pick what to do. So if your dark domain that you're making yourself is a reflection of the characters that you've been with for the last two years, that makes sense. Absolutely. But how many people are playing that? No one. No one is doing that. That like right. 
I have to justify it by saying that's the only way it will make sense, and no one is doing that shit. And especially with the dread domain, something I do every time I run Curse of Strahd, literally every game I run, I've got a little note card, and it says, number one, this is supposed to be fun. So I have to remind myself, hey, it's horror setting, and it's terrible. It's supposed to be a game. Make it fun. And mm -hmm. two is, where do I introduce every single backup character when these dumb motherfuckers cause a TPK? And so I have a list of like every single chapter, I've got two spots for introducing backup characters in a narratively satisfying way. So I just made my Dark Lord as a reflection of all your level one characters. Great. They all died at level two because they were idiots. <laughs> Great. Now I'm going to change them. So uh, I said, screw that. I'm not I'm not doing any of that. Uh, and back to my earlier rant about they're all people. And I hate that because apparently a human being in 20 years of life can do something so bad they've got to be separated. But a dragon in a yeah. millennia can't. A dwarf in hundreds of years can't. An abolith has never done it. Like, where are they? Where's my kraken, Dark Lord? Mm -hmm. And like a lot of people, you know, I like my dragons and I really love my dragon turtles. And I said, fuck it, I'm going to make my dragon lord or my dark lord a ancient dragon turtle because that's somebody who's had enough time to get up to some dark shit and have lost perspective on morality, convinced that they are the hero doing the only thing right. And so everything justifies that. Did you have access to Fizzbands when you were doing this? Were you? I did. Yeah. Uh, I did. And I used the table in it. Um, and the table actually gave me two really good pieces of. Uh, or the the uh, really good piece of inspiration. One was for the ancient dragon turtle. They have been tasked to keep a kraken asleep. I love that. I love that. And the other was uh, they are under a geas to uh, carry the fortress of a lich, which plays into the name I picked for my dark lord. Incidentally, and surprisingly to me, but um, my dark lord it originally was named uh, Daifang. And I'm going to butcher, I'm going to butcher every name in here because they are not uh, of English origin. And also I am not extremely literate. So, sure. uh, so uh, Daifang is, I believe, Mandarin for Typhoon. And that seemed like a good name for a dragon turtle. Big event at sea. Man, I love that. That There's some synergy there that is just beautiful. You're wait for it. it it actually gets better and it surprised me when it happened by accident so uh daifang is my dragon turtle and after keeping a certain patch of water safe and kind of you know falling in love with this piece of the ocean uh she was tasked by the goddess of the sea to keep a kraken asleep uh i mentioned before we started recording i have a four-month-old who does not like to sleep yep i don't know how you actively keep something asleep magic the only answer is magic or some hardcore sedatives yes and that baby is very sedative resistant i can tell you that uh <laughs> and the veterinarians around here are getting just started asking me questions um <laughs> but so and, and, and in a combination of if you're trying to keep something asleep you're not sleeping you're awake Yep, doing this and that creates a level of paranoia so i imagine an ancient dragon turtle who's been tasked with doing this and spending hundreds of years doing it in the vagary of keep this kraken asleep all right in the first few years okay everything's calm everything's chill and then i have no idea what's going to wake this up and so now i've got to start stopping other things and stopping larger things and so the first evil act was 
a uh, two armadas of warring countries were at war in their patch of water. So she sank them yeah. because I'm going to end this fight because it's loud. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm going to do it. And there were no repercussions for her because, hey, it's fucking dragon turtle sinking boats. That's kind of a thing they do sometimes. Yeah, that that's the name of the game with these guys. Right. And then uh, the second would be she hears about a cult that knows of the Kraken. She, she hears rumors of it. Uh, and uh, she has her own kind of cult that is her information gathering group. And so she sends, uh, she creates a tidal wave to wipe out the cult and all the evidence they have of a Kraken. And it takes the city with it. And so she's just killed thousands in the process. Uh, and again, no real response from the god, but maybe now the Dark Lords are kind of taking notice. Hey, you just wiped out a couple thousand people to kill a few dozen. Um, and then, and this is what I found interesting uh, uh, about Dragon Turtles, is between Fizzbends and the Monsters Manual, it kind of blends them. They're almost true dragons, but yeah. they're not. Yeah. It says specifically they're not true dragons. And so for a dragon to reach immortality, Dracolich or any of the other undead versions, they got to be a true dragon. Well, she's not a true dragon, and she's coming to the end of her lifespan. And she's been doing this for hundreds of years, possibly a millennia. She is now convinced she's the only one that can do it. And so... And there was no time limit given to keep the Kraken asleep for 200 years. It was no. do this. Right. Because if anybody's going to be absent-minded in a task... Okay, the god said do it. Great. I'm it's gonna like do the uh, the knight at the end of the last crusade, right? Who's yeah. still sitting there with the holy grail, right? Exactly. And so paranoia has set in, age has set in, and she is desperate. She is also now convinced I've never been relieved of this. I'm the only one that can do this. This must be extremely important to this god because I've killed thousands in this process. This must be saving more than that because kraken's the weapons of the gods maybe the god needs it for a later fight maybe they're preventing it from catastrophe what have you um so she decides uh through the help of her cult to do a ritual that will basically turn her into a dragon turtle mummy if you will immortal undead dragon turtle uh to do this, she uh, she gathers up not only her own children, uh, she gathers up their echoes because the ancient dragon turtle entry in Fizban actually says they are combinations of echoes of dragon turtles. So they've got access to that. Yep. Well, how much potential are you fucking up by gathering up a bunch of children dragon turtles, a bunch of children dragons, and sacrificing them to prolong your own life? And, and you, that have to, was, you have to keep in mind too, these are not little like little ones. These are adult dragon turtles, right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, she's she's island sized at this point. She's miles across as an ancient. And these are big. Um, so she she does that act. That is the act that said the dra the dark lords say, or the dark powers say, nope, that's it. You're done. We're gonna snatch you out and we're gonna send you to uh your own domain of dread. And uh it fit into the the naming convention because when she became a dark lord i changed her name from daifang to uh and i'm gonna brutally mess this up bishi daifang uh bishi is a dragon turtle legend out of china i think it's actually the oldest dragon turtle legend uh bishi was a dragon turtle uh, child of the dragon god and all of or many of the images we have of them now are funereal stells so like a small obelisk 
on top of a dragon turtle. Mm. This feeds back into the earlier uh, dragon turtle forced to carry a lich. So Daifang snatched out from Material Plane, sent to the Domain of Dread. And uh, one thing I hated about you know, reading through Van Richten's is all of these beings who became Dark Lords seem to get some sort of power boost in the process. You go from being a person to a vampire lord, a person to a wraith, a person to something with a CR. We're going to go the other way. She goes from being an ancient dragon turtle to a mummy lord. And that's yeah. a major step down in power. It's a major step down in power. And now her fortress that she lives in as a mummy lord, as a rotting being, is on the corpse, on her former corpse. So you got a giant dragon turtle corpse island floating around. That's and it's got a little so dark. It is so dark because, again, this is supposed to be punitive. And how punitive is it to be reminded at all turns of your former majesty and grandeur and your reduction now? I used to be the master of the waves. Look at my great form. And now the moisture is destroying my rotting mummy body. Uh, and like I said, that feeds back into Vichy because the the images you see of this dragon turtle are funereal with a stell on them. So her whole fucking corpse is her uh, funereal monument with her little fortress on the back. And so her dark domain that she is in, I have called uh, the doldrums, which basically means still waters. Uh, as a sailor, I can tell you storms are scary, but if you are relying on wind power and you are completely becalmed, no current, no wind, no nothing, you're just there in stagnant water, there is a terror of isolation there. I, I legitimately can't imagine. I want you to know, I have essentially two major phobias in my life, and the the big one is water. I can't do it. Uh, like, yeah. open ocean terrifies the shit out of me. Still calm water with nothing on the horizon, 360 degrees, and you can't see what's below you, and right. everything below you can navigate the water better than you. Yeah. That's just terrifying. Yeah. Uh, I have spent probably three years of my life on a boat in the water. I spent uh, damn near two consecutive uh, deployed and every single patch of water is different and every single one has their terrors. Uh, I was in the, the Persian Gulf for 23 months and those waters are deceptively still. Uh, I mean, mid 90s PlayStation water graphics, you will go out and look at the ocean and you're sitting here saying, that's not real. That's that the 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 matrix is glitching and they forgot to render that part. That's not real. And it starts to play with your head. And I know a lot of people think of this uh the romance of the open ocean, and you're so far away from everything and you're so free. You're trapped on a tiny goddamn boat. And yep. you are spending every ounce of your waking effort keeping that boat from sinking because that boat wants to kill you and the ocean wants to kill you. You're essentially astronauts, right? right. You're so far away from help and you are yeah. in the technology at your hands and the people with you to keep you from dying. And uh, yeah, that that would be the conversation I would have with Terry right now. And that's what I always get in with the uh, the Navy versus the land guys is because whenever you get military guys together, there's there's two topics of conversation. It's who has it worse because you're bitching and that time you shit your pants doing something. <laughs> sure. If you ever talk to a, yeah, I'll tell you, every, all the listeners, if you ever talk to a fighter pilot or a pilot, ask them about the time they shit their pants in the cockpit. They've all done it and uh, they've all got some funny fucking story about it. But, you know, I always scared the the ground guys because I'd say, you know, when you go to sleep in your tent, you're not afraid that while you're asleep, 
some dumbass is going to crash your tent into another tent. <laughs> and then you're going to wake up in the dark to the sound of water rushing in. And if you're really, really lucky, you're going to get to that hatch before somebody closes it to save the ship. And that is that is a real terrifying fear. Uh, so that was one of my inspirations of making this on the water. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. I hope I hope your players can feel that because when you're talking like, oh, it's going to be a dark fantasy setting. There is a special kind of existential dread that comes with water that right. comes with with the the aquatic, the naval, that that level of of not just combat, but adventuring and exploration as well. Like yeah. you are a speck. And the ocean is a titan, and you are insignificant compared to it. And you cannot run away. Exactly. I had a uh, I had a friend on an aircraft carrier uh, years ago who described the aircraft carrier had a fire on it, and it lasted for days. It burned from the inside for days, and she would fight the fire for eight or nine hours, and then she would have to go to bed. And they would tell her, "Hey, we may wake you up," you know if the fire gets here and somehow a fire always causes a flood and then both of those cause electrical hazards and then there's toxic gas it's all a combination i was uh i was in a training simulator when i joined the navy where it was essentially a small boat it was about three decks uh three levels and they wanted to simulate a hole in the hull that we had to repair well yeah the it it wasn't a building it was three decks of a boat in a pool deeper <laughs> than the boat. And yeah. so we were below decks. And I remember we were down there and we were fighting the flood and it was going poorly and all the valves open, all the water was coming in. And I'm a fairly tall guy. I'm about six foot four, six foot five. And so the water was about my collarbone level coming in still when they turned off the lights. Fuck. <laughs> and, no. No, so yeah. that's the point where I poop my pants. I'm yeah. done. A lot of people started screaming. There were a lot, and that's when adults who could swim, join the Navy, are screaming in terror. And it's like, okay, I can't keep it at that level for an entire campaign. No one wants no. to go through that. No, I can do that interspersed once or twice, and I got to mm -hmm. change it up. But that's the kind of thing I kind of want to introduce with, with this. Uh, and so, yeah, my, my domain is this still sea with very few waves basically no wind all propulsion is manual you're rowing and uh that's a further slight on the bishi daifang here is this great being that used to have power over the waves power over the weather nothing not you are just becalmed uh as your body drifts randomly around and so that's kind of my that's kind of the idea. This uh, big dragon turtle corpse will drift around. It'll hit the settlements kind of randomly as it goes. And, you know, the the cult that serves Bishi, because uh, I feel it's important for the Dark Lord to have some sort of lieutenants to kind of interact at the early levels instead of just throwing the Dark Lord at the party. Uh, they will be looking to gather treasures to increase Bishi's hoard in an attempt to get it powerful enough to resurrect. And... Um, Bishi has not told them that she has no connection whatsoever. She does not feel it. Her big fatal flaw is she doesn't trust any of them anymore. She feels she is paranoid, but uh, her her main quest is to get back her canopic jars 
And so uh, if you're not familiar with the canopic jar, if you've seen the mummy, it was the jars that, you know, they kept the body parts in, uh, as you guys probably spoke about on the one episode. Um, well, for a fucking dragon turtle, how big are those going to be? I was about to ask you, how big are those damn jars? That's what she did with her children in the Echoes. She turned them into the canopic jars. Okay. So her heart is inside an adult dragon turtle. And so that would kind of be the MacGuffin is those have been scattered. You got to kind of find them, bring them back together, pseudo complete the ritual to get her in a state to kill her forever. Yeah. Oh, so she was okay. Is that her, her irredeemable act then? Is she got most of the way through this, this ritual? She yeah. got 95% of the way through it. And yeah. in so doing it, she crossed the line of killing all of these people. And before she could finish, she was close enough. The dark powers came in and scooped her away. You have to finish it to make her mortal or to make her killable. Otherwise, mm -hmm. she's just in this in-between purgatory. Yes. Okay. That's yeah. fucking amazing. I love that. That's. I'm hoping as well that you're going to beef up the um, Mummy Lord stat blocks and spell lists. Because as great as mummy lords are, they're not epic level monster. They they need to be able to take on all of the CRs above CR eight are wrong. Every one of them is wrong. So yeah. especially um, when you introduce magic items and MacGuffins, it's it's out the fucking door. Yeah, yeah. So your your mummy lord needs to be able to be a eighth or ninth level spellcaster in order to take on a level eleven or twelve party. Right. So so. To answer that, I I like introducing different potential endings for my players to choose from. And depending on the ending they choose, it will get more or less difficult. And it'll create stages of fight. Okay, you fought the mummy lord who was trying to stop you, and you've completed the ritual. Well, now it's a fucking adult dragon turtle. <laughs> yep. That's stage two, or it's something like that. So uh, one of the things that Dai Fang, I've got her doing is uh, I've got this big set piece battle in my mind occurring inside her body cavity. Her body is hollow inside the shell. There's water in there. That's where she keeps one of her canopic jars, her, her son, that has her heart in it. Uh, and so your party's going to have to get the others in there somehow. I mean, that's kind of, I don't want the MacGuffin to be a weapon. I hate that. I want the MacGuffin yeah. to be access to the fight or information, something like that. So that's why like Necronomicons are so popular is because it's not right. like the sun sword. Yes. And so I've got in my mind, uh, she is going down there and in that enclosed space, she's trying to kind of recreate the experience she had before. She's creating, she's creating stars on the the roof of her old shell she's sort of building almost a construct dragon turtle body to then move around she's recreating all of this and that gives me the opportunity then if the players find a canopic jar which is a dragon turtle and somehow revive it to then fight her construct dragon turtle and we have a godzilla mecha godzilla fight inside of an ancient dragon turtle while the pilots are on top fighting each other. And I think, you know, that's kind of the set piece that really spawned all of this. Sorry, I'm looking up Dragon Turtles right now in Fizzbands, and um, yeah. I'm trying to see, yes, okay, all right, I got it. They've got regional effects listed here, they've got layer actions, they've got spell casting, and they've got hordes. Right. 
Their hordes are different. They're not like a dragon horde, but they they definitely have hordes. Okay, so we're essentially dealing with dragons, and and that's kind of what I was touching on earlier. Is they are in that weird. They are they are the tangent. They are so close to being a dragon, but for some reason it says they're not. Okay, whatever. I mean, I don't know of any other dragon-like beings that can absorb their echoes, which implies dragon sight and other things, but page 191 of Fizban says they can do it, so. I want to say that there are, I was going to say gem dragons, but that might be Matt Coville's gemstone dragons I'm thinking of. Mm. There's something else that that is aware, but I think it might be a great worm. Yeah. Or an ancient gemstone. Like, I, I couldn't quote you directly. Um, I freaking love this. Yeah. Is that, so what do you have? So that's your your Dark Lord. What do you have for your, your domain? What so, does your domain look like? Clearly aquatic, but. It's, yeah, it's a sea. There's going to be uh, three or four island settlements uh, throughout it. And then you're going to have a couple of mobile options. So you're going to have, obviously, the, the dragon turtle's corpse itself is going to be the court moving around from place to place. And I imagined, actually, it would be interesting to create a separate location of a fleet of ships that use the wake of that to actually move around. And so you've got the dragon turtle corpse, and then you have the fleet behind it. I don't know, maybe giant chains pulling them, they're riding the wake, what have you. And then a handful of settlements. Um, I've got a a character in it that's going to serve the Madam Ava role, the the prophet, if you will. Uh, and I tried to say to myself, who would be the best counterpoint to a dragon turtle? Well, it's got to be a giant. So it'll be a storm giant. Storm yeah. giant, ocean, yeah. And hey, look, a storm giant quintessent makes perfect sense. They're immortal. They're living in this land. You could easily say he's been here so long he's lost his mind or she's lost her mind. And so you've got to bring this prophet uh i've named it solaton and solaton is a nautical term for a solitary wave so there we go that's really cool yeah uh i'm big into the names i'm big into a link of the names yeah. so am i i've had to actually steer clear of it because my players will actually look that shit up um anamnesis did they ever sorry did they ever figure out anamnesis no as a matter of fact Anybody that checks the show notes will see that my my full name is Adam Nason, and they thought that I was just like jerking yeah. off at them with my own like self inserted my my own name into it, and I'm like, mm-hmm. ah, yeah, sure, you can believe that. And it wasn't until I pointed it out at the very end, and I yeah. used it in a sentence that um, Dan and Charlie and Dave all slow turned to me and went, "Fuck." Right. So, but so. Uh, Solaton will have an island. It'll be the only place with any sort of wind because it's a living storm. And then I'll probably throw in a couple of underwater grottos of some sort. Uh, I feel like a hag's grotto would be perfect. I feel like a domain of dread is a hag's paradise. You know, they probably love the ability to endlessly fuck with people there that, you know, can't get away. So. So, okay, I've got a question for you. Yeah. How, how many levels are we talking about? How long is this campaign? Level 1 to 20? Level 3 to 12? Are you starting off in Tier 2 and going all the way to the end? How do you think those? Yeah, that's a really good question. I didn't have a good... Uh, because, I would say... Sorry, my my reasoning for this is Sea Hags are super low-powered. And they're yeah. obviously the right answer. Yeah. Like... Yeah, there would be some homebrewing involved to kind of go in the Hellboy Bogroosh yeah. direction. Yeah, and cool. it would be uh 
I mean, we've talked about it. You can make a hag hit outside their level by, or you've you've talked about it. We haven't, but uh, you can make a hag hit outside their level just by the the creatures that work for it and the influences. Um, but I would say I'd want to do a, a one to one to twelve with the option to go to fifteen, maybe sixteen. Uh, I feel like a, a fifteen party with the right magic items and the right skill sets could probably take a CR seventeen or eighteen. Yeah. yeah, I'm going to float an idea before we go any further here. Yeah. Or rather, here's my question. How does this end? The killer? Yeah. So the you know, they could destroy the mummy lord body. And okay, they're free. That's the low level. Um, yeah. But then, yeah, finish the ritual and kill her. And you, you set free all the echoes. And that undoes it. And then that's the end. Yeah. Well, I always love that, that twisting of the knife. My character, my players in the last session, they were level 20. They hunted down all the pieces of everything that they needed to do. They were right on the cusp of all becoming undead themselves and powering way the fuck up. Um, and they were in the capital city of the region. And they're like, hey, you know what? We've succeeded. This is great. And then they discovered that some asshole had chained a bunch of uh, enlarged reduced spells on the Tarrasque and had made it microscopic. Yeah. And any minute now, that motherfucker is going to be its regular size and we're in a floating city and it's somewhere in the city and there's no way to find it. So they were doing a, a massive evacuation that had nothing to do with the rest of the plot. It was just one of the lieutenants got their final comeuppance by saying, here you go. And I'm thinking, what do you do when you finally kill her? The Kraken wakes up. Oh, um, excuse me. I'm writing things down now. <laughs> right. Uh, because you built it right in at the very beginning. She's there to keep the Kraken quiet right to keep it asleep right. um a a ancient dragon turtle in the death throes it, and yeah. the the entire realm that's built around this dragon turtle coming crashing to like i assume the sea will swell and there will be giant upheaval all over the yeah. kraken's gotta wake up right right and that makes me feel like the level 15 party with magic items and a couple of epic boons and a armada of allies and a giant quintessent versus the kraken right that yeah. finally comes to and maybe the kraken wakes up and busts out because a kraken is by the gods and the gods are more powerful i think than the dark powers so maybe yeah. the kraken can bust out and find a way home right and then the party's got to chase them back to the material plane and kill it there right something that, like there's my big epic final set piece yeah no i like that and uh then I can chain that into the beginning of Storm King's Thunder. We've released that Kraken. There uh, you go. Yeah. 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 No, yeah. No. Uh, yeah. I like that. Um, like. Yeah. Sorry. So that that was the big thing is that like that Kraken has just been sitting there is just kind of in the background mentioned right. every once in a while. And any player, any player that has played more than two campaigns should be sitting there going, that is, that is Chekhov's gun. I, yeah. I know that's coming up later. Right. Yeah. So. And and off the heels of a fight with the mummy lord and an adult dragon turtle and possibly an ancient dragon turtle, that's gonna be a shitty fight. Uh but that is I think that's actually by CR the power scaling of it all too, right? Like I think Mummy Lord is lesser than an, an adult dragon turtle. Yeah, Mummy Lord's like 15, ancient dragon turtle's like 24. So it's right there with the Kraken. Uh, yeah, the Kraken's 23. That one I just happen to know off the top of my head. Okay. But yeah. So anyway, um, so I've got some, sorry, is, did, do you have more to run through with the, um, different, you've got uh, a couple of different islands 
here um, that are laid out. One that's based on folk horror, one on body yeah. horror. Um, uh, I think the settlements, and I think it's good in Domains of Dread, you can't have a consistent one horror theme throughout the whole thing because it becomes a little stale and it's difficult to maintain that in a way that keeps the players and the characters engaged. So I'm using my settlements as ways to introduce other elements of horror. Uh, mm. So uh, I figure going back and looking at the you know famous movies about islands, okay, Island of Dr. Moreau. Yep. Perfect. These people are going to think uh, there's no way back. We're here forever. We need to adapt to our watery world. Let's start experimenting. And then in comes the body horror. Are you going to use the Simic hybrids? from ravnica for this because it's built right in yeah i probably would yeah yeah and then you know, oh shit what's it called they've got some sort of hold on let me look this up really quickly they've got a kind of creature there which is just it's not even really a stat block is more of just a template give me mm -hmm. one second while i pull it up yeah take your time here we go the crisis um in the deep sinkholes that serve as laboratories and guild halls in the Simic Combine, biomancers employ a combination of magic and scientific method to create novel life forms. They coax new morphologies from existing creatures or combine traits from multiple organ uh, organisms. Um, some crasis are unique creatures that can't reproduce. A few multiply and become part of the guild's standard menagerie. But here's the thing. You give them major adaptations and minor ad adaptations, and then you give them category one, two, or three. They're all kind of aquatic, mm -hmm. and they're all different like sizes. And they're they've got different things like um, they have bioluminescent markings. They can fly. They've got hypnotic display or venomous sting. They can regenerate. They have ink clouds or climbing speeds. And you're just supposed to mash this shit together, right? For different kinds of just aquatic themed monsters. And yeah. these are in um guild master guide to ravnica in the best area at the end of that book um Perfect. yeah so if you didn't know that was there you you do now i've been kind of low-key holding on to these for my own campaign to have weird body horror island of dr moreau kind of smashing ideas together yeah and so you know the trade with that island would be in organs or in some oh you you introduced a non-human player char uh, character yeah we want that piece of you to see if how well that works so uh, could do that. We've got uh, a settlement that I was thinking of full core, and I was trying to think like, what? How do you go into full core? And the, these would be a group of people that think that the end of the world has happened, and actually, Vichy Daifang saved them. They they sort of worship. Hey, you saved us from the apocalypse. Thank you. And so to celebrate every time uh, Daifang's court arrives, uh, in between they build sand castles which mimics the flooding of the city when she wiped it out. And I was thinking maybe almost Wicker Man style, maybe the whoever built the best sandcastle, congratulations, 12-year-old kid, you're in it while we flood it. And the water washes away our sins and we're we're born again. And uh, I almost want to make these Kuatoa. This little so the, I've got the Kuatoa listed somewhere in here because I think it would be an interesting element if one of the canopic jars, one of the uh, dragon turtle corpses, was being worshipped by the Kuatoa. They found this fucking thing. They're worshipping it. It's got some level of animation. And yeah, that's causing a, an issue. And then you got to deal with them. When you have an inanimate object that has kind of a will of its own, like if they're worshipping this thing as a god and then it's becoming a god slowly, right. I would turn to Rhyme of the Frost Maiden because you have Aureal's 
like crystal that's actually a thing that you can fight i would turn to that for inspiration um just for this non-biological combat moment right where there's this this dragon turtle shell that is what floating and crackling with lightning or whatever the kuatoa decided that it is right and it's just floating around this massive grotto or cavern or lagoon or whatever you decide and it's just shooting out acid or like whatever bullshit that they come up with Uh, and then when you finally do enough damage to it it'll crash to the ground or maybe you just have to kill enough kuatoa so that the belief is not strong enough anymore and it crashes to the ground and then you can get into it yes Uh, and of course you introduce kuatoa and you can almost go like the movie dagon you know (laughs) and that almost goes back to that uh body horror hey we're kind of trying to figure out how to do this but so uh the last thing i'll say on the domain of dread is for the the reflections of the acts uh you know spreading out through the whole place i've put that largely in the random encounter table and so in my random encounter table i've got the three acts uh almost recreated you've got a you know as the ships are going the mists are coming in and the mists are forming buildings and then amongst the buildings you see people running around and they're enjoying themselves and then they all start running and there's a massive tidal wave of mist that rolls over the ship and the fleet and it's completely silent until that hits and as it passes over you there's the rush of water and the scream and the crash of buildings and all these people dying and make your constitution save or you take an exhaustion level as this thing goes and so i've got that i've got uh you know coming across the shipwrecks and i think this would be uh torment again to Daifang is you come across shipwrecks that all appear to have been victims of dragon turtles mm. and they are missing their treasure hold it's all already been taken so she's just seeing the results of the others works and that she can't do anymore and lastly and I don't think any of my players would pick up on this uh it would be the sound of a heartbeat and so they would just be sailing along and then suddenly there is this just drowning everything out as the sound of a heartbeat. And it is going and speeding up and louder and louder and then just stops. And if they pay attention, which they won't, uh, they'll realize that three or four times they come across this, each of the heartbeats is different. And each of this, she knows, uh, each of them is the last heartbeats of her children during the ritual. And so that just really drives home what happened. Will the characters pick up on it? No. But that's the point. This is her realm and her punishment. So that's that's what I've got. Okay. I've got a lot of ideas here. I've been taking notes as you've been talking. Yeah. Um let me we let me spitball at you for a minute. Happy. Yeah. Um let's start with her moving corpse. This she has a structure on it that she lives in, her actual um, or does she just like sit there in the open weather? on the back of her corpse i wanted it to be almost a ziggurat i wanted it to be yeah pyramid i was really i wanted to go for a mesoamerican feel because i don't feel they get enough representation in anything and then the asian flavor was just too perfect for this so yeah uh, yeah so some sort of ziggurat that her cult works out of and that she lives in so is she herself mobile or does she sit kind of half mobile in a sarcophagus never able to live never able to die just giving orders and asking for reports uh so she is mobile and he does spend a lot of time doing that she spends a lot of time going down to her we'll call it her grotto inside where she's trying to recreate her environment and then i imagined that anytime she pulled into port and the dragon turtle landed 
there would almost be like her holding court. People have to come up, they have to present some sort of tribute. Uh, sailors have to earn their right in the fleet. And that would be my chance to uh, introduce her to the players directly because her interest in adventurers would be, hey, did the Kraken wake up? Is it awake? Tell me what's happened. I need to know because that's, I'm, I'm gathering my strength and I'm going back there and I'm keeping my job. Do you think the players will know right away that she's the big bad? I, I want to make it a little vague. Uh, I want her to be a little sympathetic in her paranoia. And I think it would be good to have almost the Starscream, Grima Wormtongue Lieutenant yeah. that appears to be the big bad. And in reality is part of the dark powers torment of her. I think that you've got a unique opportunity here to make her be the big good guy mm. but every once in a while you'll hear about okay so sorry so follow me on this i have yeah. four different breakdowns here the first one is her moving corpse in for me i take it or leave it i would shroud it in fog that's darker um so that you don't realize you're walking on the back of a dragon turtle as a matter of fact most people talk about the temple on the island that moves through the fog or whatever what do the locals call the moving corpse, the 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 island? They need some evocative name mm. as uh, as she moves around, and she doesn't follow a pattern, does she? It's just kind of like where the where the waters take her. Yeah, and that was that was to really hammer home. You used to have power over the seas, and now you are at their mercy. So yeah, but it also has to be a reflection of her. So I wonder if. She goes where she becomes obsessed. So mm -hmm. if the players were at a temple of hers and they destroyed it, she will go there the moment she finds out. She doesn't want to go there, but she always has to go where um, where her mind will, will force her to go. That's her level of paranoia. She can't escape her own thoughts. So the players might be able to convince her of things if they ever figure that out. Or mm -hmm. that, that Grima Wormtongue could be whispering and that's the person that's actually navigating this whole thing, right? Saying, where are we going to go next and for what purposes and whatnot is based on, we haven't been here recently. Did you know there's a festival going on next weekend? And just, it starts floating in that direction. It would, it would be rumors of the Kraken. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It could be, there's been a lot of squid life seen around the docks here, right? Mm -hmm. And that would be just enough to make her concerned enough to go in that direction right so right. um i would honestly look at the regional effects of the ancient um dragon turtle that are in uh fizzbands and i would just apply that to the moving um right yeah that's that should be flavorful enough to really hammer that home to the to the players they'll be able to notice things happening before she shows up yeah are you spending a lot of time on weather so that's the difficulty is if you're talking about there's no wind and there are no seas, that makes weather a little more difficult. Uh, but but, but that, that could be the dichotomy is the storm is rolling through. There's thunder in the air. The wind is whipping at, at the trees, but the settlements are still and the water doesn't move. The sails won't go, right? Like you yeah. can feel the wind whipping at your jacket, but the sails are dead in the water. So with which is the ghost? Is it the sails of the ghost or is it the storm that's the ghost? There's some, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah I love that. Yeah. Um, my next thought was um, the different locations uh, that you have. 
I think that you have built in some really cool locations in the backstory that should be focal points of this domain of dread. The first one uh, is obviously the place of the sacrifice itself. Right. Right. And I think that might be the place where she will never go. The forbidden island or whatnot that not even she will go to. Which would be where Solaton is hiding. Yeah, very likely could be hiding like right under her nose. The one place she'll never look, right? But when you get there, the waters are red as if with blood, right? And like this is where your undead body horror comes back. All Like her children were the big sacrifices, sure. But she also sacrificed whole swaths of her cult, right? You've got to think that they're going to be not just undead there, but things like the Sorrow Sworn as well that have been destroyed. Um, There's a bunch of wretched running around. I was thinking about um, the city that she flooded and killed everybody. Mm -hmm. Well, all of those structures still exist, right? Yes. Yeah. So so the waters slowly rose, everyone in the ground, the Kraken's priests, most of them drowned, only a handful. I would say a handful got away because those are going to be evocative NPCs to use later, right? They they are the bad guys who are going to come to your players and say, did you know she's actually evil? This is what she did to us. And everyone else is her spies or her cultists are going, no, she's, she's great. I don't know. These guys are crazy, right? Yeah. No, I like that. Yeah. And that, that can set them as to who do we trust? Who's the bad guy? Who's the good guy? Uh, and that's the reflection of her paranoia. Right. 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 So the players are starting to wonder, who do we trust? And you get a lot of gray area here, a lot of really interesting, um, the crazies that tell the truth, right? And that's a lot of fun. Um, And I'm not sure how to thread the needle, but it would be interesting to then introduce the concept of maybe somebody in her cult on her corpse is actually a member of the Kraken cult as a deep spy or reverse. But uh, that might be a little too nuanced. No, the only thing is the 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 Kraken priests, whoever the survivors are, these crazies, they've yeah. got something on this person. Like maybe that there's a cultist, and this is one of your you think side quests, but it's actually a major plot point. Right, where the um, person approaches the party after the third or fourth time, maybe that they that they've stepped foot on the corpse and they've interacted with the people. And this one cultist or, or, or I guess cultist uh, follower um, comes to them and says, look, they've got my kid and they are making it so that I have to feed them information about things. And it's really, really horrible. But like, can you please get my kid back from, and sure enough, they are holding a kid hostage. Right. However, they're doing it in the name of good, right? Like, yeah. cause nobody's good here, right? They're all bad guys. Yeah. And <sighs> And if you were having trouble getting the party to pick up, hey, this this subplot idea is actually major plot. You need to go on it. Uh, give them one of the canopic jars that you need to complete the ritual. Yeah. Hey, you, you want to do this? You have to help us. You have no choice. So I was thinking about that. I'm going to jump ahead. The canopic jars were one of the four things that I had written down. Um, I was thinking what goes in them. There are, I came up with five things. Eyes, tongue, heart, stomach, and brain. Yes. Uh, yeah, that's the traditional. I think the traditional is, yeah, eyes, tongue, heart, and brain. Normally it's the four, but uh, heart obviously is going to be one that's going to be the the hardest to get to. And I haven't really decided if when she has the, you know, her heart uh, canopic jar in her body cavity, 
is the heart actually even there or is it an empty jar that she's keeping an eye on uh and i almost imagine if you put the heart there that's the reason she never leaves the island she is paranoid if i leave the island the island might keep going without me and now i lose this what if okay so here's your tragedy what if she's looking for her heart and she can never find it and that's the thing she wants it's always out of reach where she's looking for her heart and the damn thing is every time that you get one of the other canopic jars it's been spread out you bring with it one of her four dead children and when they all come together then she realizes her heart has been in her chest the whole time and it begins to beat again because her lost loves are finally returned to her and that could be the uh yeah she's she's looking for her heart but in reality what she's looking to do is when this is this is difficult when you're going back to the the dark lord uh concept because they're supposed to be unrepentant and never seek atonement so is she seeking her heart or is she seeking to release the souls of her children in the echoes that she is trapped with her but she she, i think the heart is a metaphor for her children's love and she wants that and it isn't until she brings them all together or that like your players will figure out we have to bring all the pieces together each one represents a different one of the kids right and we bring them all together so that her heart will beat with love but instead the kids are like look what you fucking did to us and then that heart beats with rage instead so to answer your question on what the canopic jars hold, I am going to cheat. Sure. She's really fucking big. The heart has four chambers. Each canopic jar holds a piece of the heart. Cool. Yeah. yeah. You got to bring them all back together. Do you put another object in there with it? Because I was thinking you've got a lot of thematic shit. The tongue um, can be the uh, can be with the Kuatoa who are chanting a god into existence. The eyes can be with the spies from the Kraken priests who are trying to figure out the different aspects of what's going on there. The brain can be um, the uh, uh, quintessent who is going to represent the paranoia of uh, thinking too hard about things. Um, I was thinking, so in my head, I kind of went down um, a rabbit hole for a minute. Um, I like the idea of there being a bunch of different islands because it's an aquatic theme, but there should also be a peninsula so that the players can try to walk out. And find that, no, it's just mists. You can't walk out. You'll turn around and come back. There's no reason why it can't be a peninsula. And in that peninsula would be a bunch of the sorrow-sworn hungry, and they're guarding the stomach. That just, like, thematically made sense to me, because what other hungry thing? But you could do, like, tribal knolls, because they're always hungry. Right. Right. What was the, uh, the, was it a 90s or an 80s Ray Liotta movie, No Escape? They thought they were on an island, but they were on a peninsula, or vice versa? Yeah, it was something like that. I yeah. vaguely remember that. <clears throat> but yeah, the like yeah. I like the idea of them saying, well, we can't leave by ship. Because okay, so here's one of my other notes. In the mists, normally the mists drive you crazy and and get you lost and then eventually kill you, right? Yeah. I think in the mists for your domain of dread, it should just be the echoes of her tidal waves that push you back into the domain. Echoes of the tidal waves. So yes, on the peninsula. I think that's fantastic because it introduces the the best piece of a effective horror which is hope and yeah. then taking it away uh or it's impossible uh and then yeah echoes of the tidal wave keeps pushing you back keeps pushing you back maybe even to her corpse as it's moving around you cannot get away from her uh but the, the I think that there still needs to be the detrimental aspect of and le- levels of exhaustion because it's as if you've been swimming for hours 
you're just worn out from doing this. Or it just destroys your ship every fucking time, <laughs> right? So the like you guys, you 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 head up into the mists uh, on your uh, the giant galleon that you managed to save up to buy back into the mists. Off you go. You wake up the next morning on a beach surrounded by broken bits of ship, right? right. And you are waterlogged with three levels of exhaustion. And and Bishi Dai Fang's priest is looking down on you and saying, "Thank you for this tribute, but you could have presented it in a more." appropriate manner at a more appropriate time that so that was one of the things is i think you should have a specific place where the players always wash ashore again over and over and that'll drive home the loop right because you've got this sandbox of a number of different like small islands um they'll be moving back and forth mostly on ships and yeah. that's a that's a problem because ships are not you, you're you're taking your shelter with you yes. right and as much as as ships are frightening and the water is frightening it's not the same way as as you're walking down the path and you hear something squawking from the bushes to your left or a roar in the distance it's right. different it's different when you're on a ship um or a moving castle or whatever it is so take you always take it away and you always spit them back into the same place in the very center of the map so a way i think you could do that pretty cleanly is I would always put them back into the fleet of ships following uh, Shidai Fang as a shipwreck. Hey, yeah. you wake up and you are clinging to the capsized hull and I'm going to ro roll a d20 to see which ship picks you up. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things I wanted to do is create a, a you know random table of the ships to see who picks them up. Uh, I could see that going well. I could see that going poorly because the question becomes, well, where do we get our next ship? Where do we get our third ship? And if we're not traveling with the fleet, we're rowing. How do we navigate? And that's that's a level of difficulty I have not put a thought into yet. So I think that she wiped out an entire city, yeah, right, by drowning everyone there. But the structures still stand. What if, like, one of the noteworthy things that you you should just have a ghost town where all of the ships are still there and all of the buildings are still there and there's just nothing like it's a it's a port city and there's yeah. nothing nothing there but everyone talks about the ghosts and may okay well here you go all of the ships that are there are real ships these are actual echoes of the ships from the armadas that were sunk so yes. all, all of the people are dead but the civilization is gone and their structures are all left behind as if they had just gone off to battle. So like all of the, the holds are always full of food that does not rot because mm -hmm. it's always about to, like it just got loaded up. There's just no people here anymore. So same concept, but I'm going to water world it because cool. water world, if you're in that, uh, water world is a worse horror movie to be in than most of the fucking ones we've talked about. And not uh, just because of the acting, no. Not because of the acting. Jack Black was great in it. He had one line. He was phenomenal. He was the pilot. I loved him. I think uh, Kim Coates. I always get his name wrong. But anyways, um, a lot of good first timers there. Dennis Hopper, never mind. Um, <laughs> but if the city is waterlogged, what if there was a floating, lashed together shipwreck, a toll type island above it? But the ghosts from the city below had come up and driven away all the survivors. And so that's where you show up. You show up on this floating atoll. You don't understand why there's nobody here. There's some level of provisions available. There's a seemingly endless number of ships you can cut from the lashes and go. And, and, but the 
But sorry, the damn thing is, you take the ship and it gets destroyed. When you wash up, that ship is there again. The ship is there again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And maybe it's got scars of from where you got hit or some yep. sort of remnants. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so I also think that you have... I don't know how much you want to bury the idea of the Kraken being a legitimate threat um, at the very end of the campaign um, or how much you want to work in the Kraken Priests um we actually have a stat block for kraken priests in the monster yeah. monster of the multiverse it was in yeah. volos there's so much good stuff that you're going to be able to pull out from um not just ghosts of salt marsh but also there's a lot of fishery stuff in icewind dale as well mm, up in 10 okay. towns so they've got a, like they've got a lot of like fishery trinkets i think they got a trinket table and a lot of okay. it is based on uh on kind of the fisher folk that that live up there and so so much scrimshaw just an just so much scrimshaw but uh <laughs> um so this is kind of what i'm thinking you've got the the place of sacrifice where your quintessence is hiding um this fallen city where the kraken people used to live which has been abandoned and now there are new people living there but yeah. they're all, but they all follow her. They're allowed to live there because they follow her. Um, but there's still echo graffiti keeps popping up of tentacles, or yeah. there's you know, squids nailed to doors as a threat, shit like that. And that that could be our uh our tie-in to the cultist on her corpse, her cultist. It might not even be a you have my child thing. It's I am working with them because I want to go to this settlement to get riches, gold, whatever, because of reason. Yeah, they're doing it out of greed. And mm -hmm. so they're using, they're working with the Kraken cult to create those rumors, the tentacle marks, the whatever. And then they report on, oh, did you hear at so-and-so's island? They uh, they spotted a Kraken and his name was Bill, the one you're trying to kill. And, uh, oh, they did. And they get there. And now I'll accept my tribute. I like that. I also really like toying with the idea of the fact that the Kraken is not here at all. No, this, no, this no, no, no. All just straight rumors that her, her star scream is putting in the background to keep her paranoid. Yes. And to somehow enrich himself because I'm gathering these riches. I'm gathering this tribute to go into your hold, which in my mind, her hold is or her hoard is some cavity of her body that is rotted, and they're just leaving a trail of these items out behind her. Doesn't matter how many times they fill it, just slips out of their grasp. Because how fucking annoying would that be to be a dragon turtle and just like, oh, there goes my shit. Um, well, I was thinking about this. If we're following the same rules as the dragons from Fizzbands, she's going to have multiple um, multiple hordes littered around. Right. You could have a different canopic jar in each one of them. Yeah, yeah. And um, then every time that you rescue one your your players will be able to go to that horde and find most of it's been picked over but there's still some items and this helps them kind of gear up and level up because there's really nowhere for them to get magic items either right there's really not i introduced a uh a random encounter uh, again with the shipwrecks and you could you know hey you come across a shipwreck and there's something on it but that doesn't feel as necessarily rewarding uh no, you stumble upon at that point yeah and I, I and it's it also it's i was listening to uh your episode earlier today in fact about uh gifts and boons and things you give and i like to give tailored magic items depending on the tier you yeah. know uh that that first tier is going to be the magic items that lets them do that epic moment that they design the character to do uh oh you wanted that smooth talking bard that can get away with anything 
cool. Uh, here is uh, your chainmail veil, the veil of suggestion, and you get the advantage on all persuasion and deception checks outside of combat. Cool. Go ahead. Uh, I'm going to take that away from you because it's fucking broken. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think tying it to a horde uh, or even to the gifts of the Kraken priest. Oh, we got this for you. It seems to be useful. Would be uh, would be a great idea. I don't know why I keep putting my notepad and my pen down. I should just keep them because I keep writing down half of what you say. So um, I'm looking at your random encounter table here, and you've got this amazing column beside it all um which is combat it's the type combat narrative exploration atmosphere um and these are all like each one of these is great i i have two notes um one is instead of one d20 table with all of this shit i would break these down into four d6 tables so that you've got more control over maybe maybe one of them's d8 or d10 if they're going to run across it more often but you can choose which one they're rolling on because yeah. you may want them to have a combat, but you're never going to roll it randomly. And at that point, you're just pulling encounters out of your ass. Instead of saying, hey, here's the random encounters. I would rather have more smaller tables so that it always feels a little bit different. And you get to say to them, roll a D6. I go, why? Or roll a D8. But you also get to combine them. If you've got one that's weather and another one that's combat, then mm. you can make them roll on both. One that's narrative and another one that's exploration. You can combine them somehow, right? That's fantastic. Yeah, I'm gonna do that. So to stroke my own ego, uh, if you've looked through the the random encounter tables, which uh, which would be the random encounters is your favorite? I don't know what soul jellies are, but I fucking love the name of it. Um, scurvy is damned hilarious, but I am mostly and I mean special place in my heart for a sail mimic. Um, yeah, I've got a special place in my heart for. Um, uh sea serpents which i've never seen used appropriately and i would love to see that i don't know what ship in a bottle means but i'm fucking intrigued well if you scroll down uh ah. but uh no oh I, uh, there we go you got descriptions on them all yeah uh ship so yeah. In a bottle. god yeah. I, i'm also just blown away by how much how detailed your notes are for the listeners let, let, i mean it's gonna pick ship in a bottle amongst wreckage or floating on its own you discover a glass bottle floating on the surface of the water if floating on its own and not visible through the mist, this is discovered when it clinks against the hull of the ship. The bottle is the size and shape of a large wine or rum bottle. The cork is held down tightly by a wire lid. The faded label says sailors escape and shows a weary-looking sailor smiling uh, wanely and holding up a mug. Inside, the bottle is half full of what appears to be seawater and floating on the water is a tiny ship. No matter which way you turn the bottle, the ship is always floating upright, although it does get tossed about on the tiny waves. A perception check slash investigation check will reveal that the tiny ship has an actual tiny crew on it moving about and trying to sail the ship. If left alone, the ship will go about normal sailing activities both day and night, seemingly oblivious to the fact that they are trapped. I'm halfway done. The amount of detail that you have put into this is phenomenal. This, to me, feels like a set piece more than a random encounter because... I don't want them to run into this four times. I want them to run into this and obsess over it for like like an entire session. Yeah. And all of your entries are like this. They're all so big. There's more detail on any one of your random encounters than there are on some of the fucking domains of dread in their entirety. Yeah. No, I in it's it's a disservice to dms if i were to write this for somebody else it's a disservice to them i write it as though this is exactly what i'm reading to the players no i know and it's it's beautiful the way that this is 
is put together here. Like, I I don't know. I I just I I love everything on here. The one thing that I want to recommend to you. So the pegs, I believe I read somewhere else, is the name of a ship. That's the name of the crew. That's what they know them as. The pegs. Yeah. I would really rename that. It's 2023. Your players will be making pegging jokes the entire time, and yeah. you will you will lose your your sense of atmosphere. Yeah. No. I. Yeah. 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 And and honestly, it's it's difficult. We kind of touched on it earlier with horror. You need to. I feel there's a need to introduce the levity every once in a while just to break it up. But you are right to to do that. I mean, so for those who you know, aren't reading this because there's only two people that have uh, the pegs is a crew of uh, it's a haunted ship and they are pirates and the ship is known because it the masthead is just a bunch of severed heads in a big wire. Uh, net on the front of it and the pegs are pirates that don't want to uh they don't want plunder they want your crew they drag your crew back aboard their ship they cut their head off and they replace it with a peg head piece of the ship from their ghost ship so that's why i want the pegs just and i'm explaining that so that people didn't think it was some other sort of joke but uh yeah the peg heads or the 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 headless would be good as well yeah even if you could find another word for pegs, like you could, you could undermine it in low key. Like, oh, we call it, they're called the splinters, and then you find out fucking oh, why. Yeah. Right? Like it, it could just be a different word for it. There are just some words out there, and I mean, it comes up yeah. about every twenty episodes on the podcast where something is tainted. We just can't say the word taint without every host giggling. Right. So, yeah. No. Yeah. 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 And. uh the pegs were as all as all good DD things. It was a, a a side thought of a side thought of a side thought. I uh, had another crew earlier in this called the the silent singers because everybody on the crew was going to be unable to speak cool. for some fucking reason. Uh, the captain speaks through a parrot because when one of the uh, one of the waves, the tidal waves, rolled over that was going to try and pull their souls out, pulled his soul into the parrot next to him, took the parrot soul with him. So it's a zombie corpse with a parrot on it, and there's a and one of the members of that, oh, he doesn't talk. Why? Well, we call them necklaces. And then you see necklace, you know, necklaces Carl, and he's got a peg head. Doesn't have a head, just got a fucking wooden peg sticking up from it. And he's wearing necklaces. Oh, we call him necklaces, Carl. Because he wears necklaces. And we completely ignore the fact that he's got a fucking wooden stump for a head. I so. think that this is where your comedy should come from, is not from the scenarios. This is a problem that a lot of, of DMs have, is they... They add the levity in the naming conventions, but that means that you're stuck with that for the rest of your campaign every time someone brings it up. Yeah. Or they have that that hilarious scenario where we all have to go fight the fucking space clowns from goddamn Spelljammer or something, right? Like That would be a good domain of dread, by the way. That, abs- that absolutely it would. Um I love killer clowns from outer space. So um as someone as someone who was a clown in a a um, haunted event for years i'm all about it but like we're brothers separated by countries because i've been a clown for probably seven halloweens uh, <laughs> and and like twisted metal sweet tooth makeup and it's phenomenal okay when we're done this recording let's without context in the art part of the uh discord um let's drop in our our clown costumes if i can find a photo of mine i will absolutely uh Sure. When I see yours, I'll drop in mine. I've got two or three that are freaking amazing. So I'll, I'll see if I can. If not, uh, this Halloween, I'll I'll put it on and just drop it in without comment. Beauty, so, yeah. beauty. I love it. Perfect. Um, 
But anyway, no, when it comes to the levity and the comedy, it should be your your crew, your beloved NPCs, not the ones that will die in the shipwreck, but the ones that will get washed ashore with you. Yeah. So and- what, what I did with, with my pirate campaign was I gave them – there were no comedy creatures there, but there was um, the Cancun named Squawks, and all he mm-hmm. could do was squawk, and he sat up in the crow's nest. There yeah. was um, – I had a fat human chef. His name was Artel Crom. And Artel Crom was the most lecherous, disgusting, his fat belly hanging out the bottom of the white stained wife beater shirt. The apron is just covered in like different colored handprints because he never washes his hands. He just wipes them. And he just wants to play cards and get drunk and look at the women, right? Uh, and drawstrings on his pants aren't pulled tight because he can't reach them and he doesn't want to. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so, um, but he's really good with a butcher knife in a fight and he's got your back and he'll feed you and heal you up, but he is just gross. And like, that's where the levity comes from is these over the top side characters that will be on your, your um, crew. I got a yeah. lot of mileage out of the fact that their ship was called the deadly daughters um, because there was captain Wharton who had the only working blunderbuss in the entire realm and was mm-hmm. the only one that could actually fire it and knew how to maintain it and reload it. But yeah. he had two really hot daughters that were like super like goth flavored to them. And they were just like sarcastic uh, kind of. Kryptonite. Yeah. 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 That's... Yeah. You exactly. So, and the players, even, <laughs> even the girls at the table were like, okay, so what's going on with the daughters? But if you spoke to them, the captain shows up and puts the blunderbuss in your chest and says, keep walking. And so the deadly daughters is not that the daughters themselves are deadly. It's that it is deadly to talk or interact with them. And this became a little thing for a handful of sessions. Like that level of interaction and comedy for your downtime so that your encounters can be more, more serious and more deadly. Yes. Yeah. And you know, to expound on that a little bit, it's you have to introduce those moments to save yourself from your players finding the levity in your big bad. Oh, absolutely. That's you got to give them an outlet because they're going to need an outlet. And so they laugh and they joke and, oh, this is funny. And, oh, the parrot did this and blah, 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 blah. And now that's out of their system. Let me get in your fucking head and let me screw with you. And and let me kill one of your beloved NPCs that were the comedy moment to really drive the point home later, right? If we have two or three fun jesters, I'm not going to kill the beloved goblin jester, but I'm going to kill the the bard that's in the party. I had I love to give NPCs out because I love to take NPCs away, and I love to have them be little windows. See, and that's some of my random encounters too. Is you're at sea, everybody. Everybody has trinkets yeah. in their own cabin. They've got the things that remind them of home because, or this is their home, right? So they've got trinkets. Your random encounter table is um, the NPCs you're traveling with. Sometimes you piss them off. Sometimes you get on their good side. If you roll a 20, they'll give you a small gift. Yeah. Right. And it's shit like that. And so that pays off for, with, with my players anyway. Um, yeah. So let me see. Let me go over my notes here. Well, well, so I want to jump in on that same exact thing. I give I give my uh, sidekicks and my DMPCs with the warning that this is your safety net. It works once, and if you need your safety net, I'm gonna fucking break your heart. Mm-hmm. That's that's the 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 agreement here. Um, you know, oh, we'll get you a dog, but you have to realize the dog's gonna die someday, and it's gonna hurt no matter how long you have it. So like, 
back to my Grung, my favorite character I've got, Jub Jub. So Jub Jub, which you're laughing at his name, uh, I think, but uh, they. Uh I, I love Grung as well. They just had uh, my players just had a Grung named Cleek, oh. and there was five E's in the middle of his name, I, and they got him eaten. So. I've uh, one of your when you're it's either how it's one of your Halloween episodes where you have the Grung defending the bank that cast disintegrate. Fucking hilarious! I laugh. <laughs> I laugh every time I hear that. Um, so my Grung uh, finally found a pair of gloves so he could touch them without hurting them. And they got kind of weirded out because he always wanted to hold somebody's hand. He always like, oh, who's holding Jub Jub's hand? He's walked up to somebody. He's trying to hold your hand. And eventually one of my players uh, cast tongues. They did not warn me they were going to do this. They just said, hey, I cast <laughs> tongues and I want to talk to fucking Jub Jub. And I said, OK, you didn't warn me. Cool. Jub Jub is now the grung equivalent of a six year old. He does not understand where he is. He does not understand what he's going on. He is your inadvertent child soldier. And that's why he's trying to hold your hand because he is in fucking Barovia and you've dragged this fucking grung six year old through the Amber Temple and he's <laughs> terrified. And so now there's a subplot of how do we save him slash he's keeping the entire party alive because he's the healer and so yeah when i take him away and when he dies uh you know his corpse is gonna hit the floor and then a little ghostly monochrome silhouetted spirit of a grung is gonna stand up out of his corpse and he's gonna walk over to the closest player and he's gonna try and hold their hand and they're gonna look in his face and realize there's confusion and there's fear and he realizes he's alone and then the wind is going to go by and it's just going to disappear but does he ever speak the only thing he says is jub jub that's why they call him that he just and i think i'm going to say that's grung for help me or something like that like yeah. it's it's supposed to be heartbreaking um now his backstory is fucking bonkers it's a whole power rangers fucking thing and it's insane <laughs> so uh but this is this is where we like this is why i'm all for characters that are comedy but not situations that are comedy, right? Because you can take yes. the character and you can use them a million different ways. A scenario or a circumstance or situation, it's a, it's that one note. You hit that joke once and you move on, right? And then it people see it as being either silly, and if it doesn't land, you're fucked. But if it doesn't land on the character, you can just retire the character or double down or try again with a different scenario with them or like whatever, so... Yes. Um, uh, let's talk really quickly about your commoners because you don't, you've got a lot of cultists and spies and, and monsters. Who are your people? I'm weak on this. Uh, so the people are going to be in you know, the, the islands of the sea that got snatched up with, uh, Bishi Daifang and maybe some survivors from the, the tidal wave though i've got in my mind there's enough of a time difference between the tidal wave and the dark the final act happening that doesn't quite uh play well so yeah that's i'm other than the little bit i have of i got an island of dr murrow i got an island of uh folk lore ish cultists uh wicker man style i really don't have much on commoners uh being sea-based i mean the fleet i had the idea you're gonna have you know your fisher people your salvagers and the the ships that defend all the other ships from the monsters of the sea sea serpents coming in you're i'd like to include 
So who again? I don't know how to do that because I'm not super familiar with them, even though I've listened to the episodes. I've never played with them, but aquatic domain scary shit seems applicable. So Sahuigan, Marrow, Merfolk, CLs, Tritons, you've got a lot of underwater mobs to play with. But if you're going to do that, then you've got to go underwater. Right. Um, And if you're going to do that, like I would almost, you know, Peter Pan, the mermaids are in this lagoon hard stop. Yeah. That's how I would play with any one of these. And same thing with your with your hags as well, right? Like, yeah. um, where are you going to put them on the map? What's really interesting here is you've got this big sandbox, right? And the players are going to run around and try to figure out what's happening with um, with this island that shows up, the, the island with the temple that shows up shrouded in fog and, like, trying to figure out what they're doing, why... What's their big immediate plot hook? Um, who are they identifying with? At what point do they go to different places? Like, who are they right. sympathetic to and, and who are they avoiding? Um, you've got hags. That's great if they're sea hags. Great for tier one or tier two encounter. Um, and of course, everything is more difficult the moment you include water. Everything is deadlier, right? So, um, but what if they don't get there until they're level 11, right? And so... The idea of the canopic jars, I think, is your your trail of breadcrumbs for them to follow. The slowly revealing where the next one is, is, is how you string them along from one location to another. But if I was going to have any of these underwater creatures, I would keep them in a lagoon or keep them way, way out in the deepest part of this region. You have to seek them out on purpose. They don't want to deal with you, and there's really no reason for your Dark Lord or for any of the priests or anybody else or the Quintessence to go to them. Just leave that as a part of the map over there. You can go talk to them if you'd like, um, and I, I might give them the ability to join a, a water festival or something there, it's like something that's very, very different. It only happens once, and then when they go back, there's no sign of these creatures ever again. Just that weird... Um, temporary nature of the ocean yeah does that make sense am i am i no that that makes perfect sense uh i mean like temporary nature of the ocean you know tides shift things change things yeah. move on uh you know we think of migratory when we think of uh birds but sharks whales a lot of things are incredibly migratory on a scale that birds can't even compete with so yeah yeah, yeah. and so i would i would do that but as far as your your basic commoners go I would suggest your fisher folk should be halflings or gnomes. Okay. My reasoning for that is um, there's a lot of aquatic going on, a lot of sea monsters and creatures and things. The fish population is going to be low. Yeah. Which means if these are your fisher folk, those fish have to go a little bit further than they would with goliaths or furball. Yeah. So I would say it'd be really cool to have them be... um, halflings or gnomes your players aren't going to see that coming and it does it doesn't have to be whimsical halflings are just short humans in fifth edition which fucking frustrates me but but that's how you get humans without it being human right and and it makes more sense to say oh uh, as you pull into this this shallow lagoon you see what appears to be a kelp farm and there's halflings working it okay that kind of makes more sense than the the goliaths are out there sinking in the fucking mud yeah yeah, and the other side of it too is that the ships, the little rowboats and stuff, will not be useful to your party. No, no, uh, and that's kind of a difficulty on its own. Of how do you? And I mean, that's a difficulty with any 
dread domain, in my opinion. Uh, how do you enable travel where travel is still dangerous and the mists still seem to be a difficulty? Because, like, I, I never understood in Barovia, your party can travel through the mists on the main roads with no problem. Apparently, nobody else can. I didn't even want to get started with that. I just assume that's right. one of those things like, hey, you have enough hit dice to make it. Like, yeah, I mean, your heroes of legend, your fates are are better than and I, I had to include magical tattoos and runes that my parties that my party doesn't know where they come from or what they mean. So that when everybody else gets put to sleep, my characters are still up and and moving around when everybody else is getting levels of exhaustion my guys are resistant to it the yes. npcs can suffer and they need to be rescued without my party getting a tpk right so right i just yeah. had i had to invent that shit to get past this why can they walk through the mists why are they able to lift these heavy things and others can't right they just fucking can yeah and i see that as a uh, a thing i see a lot of dms struggling with that when i when i'm on reddit of how do i get my party together how do i keep them interested just fucking tell them hey you're a party you all know each other you oh, work yeah. together yeah fiat fiat the fiat the existence party don't worry about the logic in three sessions nobody's gonna fucking remember yeah yeah um okay so for another group of random civilians yeah. um have you looked at all i'm gonna keep going back to ravnica um you got some hybrids sorry i do not have that book that is one of the few i don't have it's pretty fucking solid i'm not gonna lie it's yeah no i've I've got it on my list. I was going to go buy it, and then that whole OGL thing happened. And oh, that turned everybody off of, of giving wizards money, and I totally understand that. Yeah. Um, but you don't need anything. You can Google search exactly how this works. Vidalkin or Vettelkin, depending on who you're talking to, are blue-skinned, partly um, amphibious creatures that are hyper-intelligent. They're usually lawful. Um, they live to the age of 500 and they are kind of like, um, they're almost like Vulcan in their, their attitudes towards, um, being precise about things and being intelligent and knowing the right way to do things. And, um, we've got an episode coming out on them if we haven't released it already. No, it's, it's coming in the next few weeks, but they're blue skinned, completely hairless, um, uh, humanoids that are a little bit taller than humans. But they absorb oxygen through their skin. They can breathe underwater for up to an hour. Okay. And so they're almost aquatic, but it never comes up in the Ravnica book. Like, clearly they evolved from something aquatic or something amphibious anyway. Yeah. Uh, but they're another, they might as well be human, but there's a little, there's a handful of differences that you can see in society. Okay. The Dolkin. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um. So I was thinking about your armadas that got sunk. Yeah. One of the most underutilized um, playable races, in my opinion, is the Hobgoblin. Uh, yes. And they're very militaristic. And I think that one of the armadas being Goblinoid would be a really cool way of, of, of adding flavor. And if their ghosts come back, what are their sh what do those ghost ships look like? A Goblinoid ghost armada, right? It's going to be a little bit different. And all of their flavor still works just fine for the the goblin swabbing the poop deck and the shitty bosun who's a bugbear and the captain's a hobgoblin right yeah no that's that's fantastic uh i love the idea of a a ghost goblinoid armada that maybe doesn't even realize they're ghosts yeah yeah uh no that's fantastic and then i mean honestly 
every population is in in every book is at least 30% human like right by, so i think you could probably flesh out with humans and elves and you know there's a goliath working behind the bar and like you could just multicultural the rest of it if you wanted by standard D tropes um i'm wondering what uh sea dwarves would look like or coastal dwarves yeah right if you wanted to like we have sea elves we've got a million of kinds of elves we have hill mountain and durgar for dwarves right would you homebrew together a coastal dwarf to i could see those ranks i could see homebrewing a coastal dwarf and if i had the time and the effort uh i would really lay into the the dwarf mining aspect hey these guys mine they want precious metals they want precious gems they want to be deep in something i would put a ocean-based dwarf culture surrounding a uh event down on the the bottom of the ocean where yeah. they've got the heat to keep their forges going and i would homebrew a version of the giant flail snail yeah. there's a uh there's a breed one love a good flail snail we all do yeah uh, it's a breed of snail that lives it's an extremophile that lives on the vents that actually grows iron scales so i think it's the iron foot snail yeah uh, i i have looked in the they're they're badasses all they're, they're badass, badass and you want to talk about oh the dwarves are down there and they're making iron how they've got an iron flail snail farm that they're running and then yeah that would be Oh, that's a whole thing on its own, but yeah, but it wouldn't take much to simplify it for your domain of dread. Where they're these are dwarves and they're divers, and instead of gems, they're all about coral, right? And they maintain a coral reef outside yeah. of uh, their lagoon, their bay, their whatever. If you wanted yeah. to flesh that out, so mm-hmm. um, I'm just trying to think. Barovia had essentially four populated places to to really go, yeah. Um, and I'm really stretching that by saying four because I'm including the uh, Vistani. Um, do you have anybody like the Vistani? You said you've got your Madame Eva, but you don't really have those built-in mystical allies anywhere. No, and I didn't. So I'll be. I don't honest, think you need them. I don't. I don't think I need them. And I personally, the Vistani to me, I, the way I run them, they're not allies. So I didn't even think of that. Um, sure. But no, I didn't. Uh, I didn't include any of that. Um, that wouldn't be a bad idea. People that can travel the mists. Um, yeah, I'm just trying to think who's going to. I, we don't want them to be able to travel through the mists, so we don't need the Vistani. We don't need that in no. this at all. I'm just trying to think who's going to be their their struggling commoners that need help. The the were ravens, right? Right. Uh, I would say it's. It's probably the ships of the fleet in some way, shape, or form, because I imagine that the ships are going to have to earn their position in the fleet over and over and over again. And if they've got a bad run on fishing or they got a bad run on salvage, that'll become difficult. And all of the settlements are going to rely on, this is the only form of, call it trade or travel we have. Oh, hold on. What about, how much undead are you in? injecting into this i was imagining with the mummy lord that all of her cult would be undead so uh, a fair amount there and then uh, ghost ships skeletons ghost ships. and corpses yeah. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. you've got a lot of undead right yeah what if the people trying to be saved are the ghosts that have been killed by her that just want to be put to rest oh that's pretty good yeah and by and the last thing when you kill them they 
you know, disapparate, and the last thing that that they get is the small whisper with a high enough perception check, small whisper of a thank you as they're put to rest. But then, of course, every time that that the cycle resets, they're back. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, no, I like that. I, I'm I'm trying to think. I guess that would be another. I, I don't think. That. Yeah, sorry, I don't think that that's your main like people to be rescued your main victims but it would be another layer to add on to it i could see that being the atoll settlement above the destroyed city Mm -hmm. that you don't realize those are ghosts these friendly people that are trying to help you but seem to be stuck in a loop and all of the oh your ship is destroyed and you come back that's weird they're doing the exact same thing they did when we left yeah that's weird they're having the same festival that's weird she's in labor again wait a minute and then oh okay okay and then you can introduce the kraken priests as that this guy's different than before you and and see if they notice oh you walk into the bar there's nine people in the tavern da, da, da. third time you walk in the bar there's nine people in the tavern fifth time you walk in the bar there's 10 people in the tavern what'd you say yeah <laughs> um i got to play with that a little bit with the false hydra right as well so that was that was pretty right. fun um i was shit i just had an idea and i lost it now um oh uh festivals are the thing that we always do it should be a um seasonal marketplace or an election or uh memorial day a day of mourning day of mourning actually feels a little bit better and it could just be a day of mourning for a ship that that sunk three thousand years ago has nothing to do with this at all it's just it's just let's drive home again how dangerous the oceans are you can do that i would uh i would want to somehow i would want to somehow make it something that sort of bothered the dark lord it's a festival everybody celebrates everybody knows about and it bothers the dark lord this is the day the kraken went to sleep and it just we we're celebrating the slumber of the kraken and just drives home you're not fucking doing this well, it, it's the memorial of the last ship that was that was sunk by the Kraken before she went to sleep. Yeah, so, so something like that. Yeah, um, and honestly, I would uh, I want to spread out the time a little bit because something that bothers me about all a lot of D and D games is the the urgency that is implied but is not real that then prevents any sort of I decide I want to explore. Yeah. So uh, spoilers for every D game but like <laughs> lost minds of fandelver uh it starts with gundren is captured you got to get gundren okay four weeks later you find him no you got 24 hours and that motherfucker's dead that's how that works uh that's- storm king's thunder oh the giants are going to destroy everything now you read the book you got all the time in the world they're not doing anything so the only one that i found is an appropriate level of threat is the um tomb of annihilation because there's not a thing that's that's impending doom is just uh resurrection magic is broken people aren't healing right, right. fix that shit right, right? so wow. so to that end i think i would do i would do the festival of the last ship the kraken destroyed or the day the kraken was put to sleep or it, it would all revolve around that i might actually do a different festival for every settlement that's essentially the exact same thing just from a different lens and i would tie the festival around the arrival of the corpse and her court have it you only, sorry keep going i was gonna say i want i want the court to only hit a settlement maybe every three or four months i want it to be slow in between so that there's time to find those riches for tribute to find those sacrifices to whatever and also 
I want to give the players an opportunity to say, hey, we need to we need to get on this at this time. It's going to be a few months. You have time to do subplots and side quests and things like that, because I don't want them. I don't want them to rush through it, because when I go back and think of Curse of Strahd, hey, my players have gone from level one to level eight or ten by the end of it in what is probably five weeks of game time. Yeah. Fuck, that's fast. Yeah. It is, and that's why I do a lot of overland travel. And honestly, if you just make your your domain large enough uh, with the inability to properly sail, right? Yeah. Then that is going to eat up a lot of time. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I do in my random encounters, uh, I've got a table to see how many hours pass, and if I want to zoom way out, how many days pass as well. So it's always two d four days because that's seven options, right? Yeah. So that's a week, and then um, and then how many hours go by, right? So when they travel, I can I can say, hey, this much time passed. During that time, you guys had this noteworthy encounter with this NPC. Everything else, what did you guys do for six days? How did you fill the time, right? And then give them the the agency there. Um, we rode for twelve hours a day because there's no fucking wind. Oh, okay. You all have four levels of exhaustion because you rode for four. <laughs> Sorry, I, I didn't make the rules. I did, but whatever. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask, how's your Kraken asleep? How? Yeah, like what's keeping the Kraken from? Like, I know that like if it gets disturbed, it'll wake up. But is it magic? And if so, have... who's magic? So I have no idea. Uh, and I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna be honest. I'm gonna go back to uh, I wouldn't have originally gone with the Kraken is asleep and you got to keep it asleep. But as I mentioned, I'm a recent father. And so I'm struggling with getting a baby to go to sleep and keeping it asleep and actively keeping something asleep is impossible. I have no fucking idea how you do that. Uh, so, I mean, I'm going to say some level of God magic. I mean, yeah. the, the goddess of the sea put it to sleep because she needs it as a weapon in a future fight. And she says, Hey, don't wake it up. And also I, I don't want it to wake up because I don't want you to have to kill it. Because in a fight between an ancient dragon turtle and a kraken, it's about a 50-50 fight right there. It'll wreck everything around it. Yeah. I mean, that would be just cataclysmic. But maybe I need this later, so keep it locked up for me. Uh, and poof, I did it. And now, because I'm a god, I'm going to fuck off and not explain myself. You have listed Umberly as your... Yeah, I pulled that out of uh, one of the tables, Goddess of the Sea. I Believe think we back can, in the player's manual. I think we can make it weirder. Give me one sec. I am whether it's the beginning or the end of the ah, there we go. Yes. In Princes of the Apocalypse, Old Hydra is the um water-based Prince of the Apocalypse. Now she's an elemental evil. Um is it she? Yeah, she's an elemental evil. Um but there's no reason that you can't repurpose this literal living wave to have put the Kraken down and um and given the the level of fear into the like and maybe that's what um what your your dark lord's afraid of is old hydra will come back and punish me right right uh i think i originally went with a god because it's kind of it's almost a game of thrones you've done a great job and so i reward you with this service you must perform in my name but i like that better i like old hydra better uh i would also absolutely not use the stat block and just make it up on your own because stat block yeah. for old hydra is cr18 so like yeah, no i'm i'm yeah i'm, I'm happy to homebrew um, and i don't think old hydra will ever show up 
right? Like Ohydra was the one that put them to sleep. And maybe it was Ohydra's cultists or there was a sacrifice or a tribute or something on the last ship that sunk by the, the Kraken. Maybe Ohydra was <laughs> set, sent them to their doom and they didn't know it. Or, you know, I, I need uh, 10 volunteers two from each settlement to board this ship to die so yeah. the Kraken will go to sleep. And that's yeah. why each one of the settlements has a different festival honoring one or two people from their settlement that made that sacrifice. That's pretty funny. Yeah, no, that's a great idea. So yeah, is there anything else that's standing out to you that is uh, needs to be workshopped to make this feel a little bit more fleshed out or, or ready to, to uh, be presented to players? I mean, I'd like to work a couple of subplots or side quests to get them in on, but sure. uh, uh, more so, I've got that other considerations at the bottom that I think, I mean, I'd love to workshop it, but then it's applicable to only my players, and I recognize you have... Uh, no, I don't know. That's totally cool. Yeah. So, uh, well, I think the other considerations is important because there's a lot of stuff that uh, comes up as a DM, especially when you're creating a Dread of Domain, and all the things people try to do uh, as a DM because they see, oh, a famous DM does this. I don't realize it's scripted. You know, I uh, like uh, character backstories. That's always interesting to me. I, I see that a lot on the subreddits of I've got these six different disparate character backstories. How do I weave them into my narrative? Yeah. Ah, and in a domain of dread, how the hell do you do that? And my answer is you don't. I like, I don't think so. So I look at how I hand out magic items uh, and I do it tier by tier where tier one is based on the flavor of your character, because this is when you're exploring and figuring out who your character is. Tier two is when I give you the mechanic that leans into your subclass, because this is why you built the character that you wanted to. Tier three is here is the item that, uh, or the boon or blessing or whatever, that leans into the the, um, story so far. You've come so far from level one and you're still alive and you've, saved this village you've you've saved that prince you've killed that enemy here's the this item to to show like it's not enough to just have i have a sort of plus two dragon slaying no this was the sword you drove through the dragon's heart and it now has a plus two on it right yeah and then um and then tier four is here's the item you need to end the the campaign here's the MacGuffin. That you weren't aware that you needed beforehand. I usually reveal the MacGuffin really late game. Um, mm. Otherwise, it becomes the focus of the entire thing, and you end up spending all of Curse of Strahd looking for a fucking amulet and a fucking sword. So, um, uh, right? Yeah. Like, I just, I, so that's how I think about it, especially when it comes to plot hooks as well. Is the first one is you're still learning your character. Yes. The, the plot hook isn't about the characters, it's about the players. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're you're playing into the individual playing the game because the characters, I don't care how well developed the backstory is. I don't want a perfectly developed backstory. That is a character that has no growth. Their story is done. Give me somebody who has something to work with. And if I can maybe lean on I love DD because it's something that you can use to work on facets of your own personality and improve on them in a safe environment mm -hmm. and you know use your characters to do that that's wonderful uh and yeah don't 
don't bring me a complete backstory. Give me one with growth and room. And I think it's important to realize uh, when when DMs are looking at a backstory, one, we touched on this earlier, everybody's going to give you different levels of yeah. a backstory. Someone's going to give you two lines. Uh, I want to be the most powerful. And that's it. And there's no definition. There's no achievable goals, whatever. And someone else is going to give you 35 pages. And someone's going to give you the... I was prophesized as the greatest ever and my village was attacked and I killed them all. And I'm known as dark Lord star saber. And I'm the most feared man in the country, even though I'm level one or whatever. Uh, and it's really difficult to then as a DM, try to reshape your narrative to fit that. And I don't think you necessarily need to, I think it's, it's important to uh, realize as a DM, the adventure they're on now, that actually might be their character backstory for when they're level 10. These are the first eight levels of their backstory. This is where they get that driving uh, character piece. This is why I play from, from level one, right? Everyone yeah. likes to start at level three or level five, but I play at level one because we need to see how these characters react when they're fucked. And right. that's like people bemoan that about fifth edition. You're the weakest at the very beginning. You're going to die. It's the deadliest then. And you walk around like God's late game when it should be the opposite. It's safe early and it becomes more dangerous as you go. And right. my perspective on that is always we learn the characters when they have made death saves three times this session and, and they have one health potion left. Who are they going to save? When I did the False Hydra episodes, which I know this is going to be on the public channel, so not everybody knows that backstory, but yeah, um, I lost uh, three characters out of my five. Yeah, Party's bigger than that, but but the players at the table at the time, there were five players, three of those characters died. Um, and that left me with Megan and Dan. Dan, who'd given me this big-ass backstory, multi-pages long, about... I'm a furbolg from Ravnica. Furbolgs aren't from Ravnica. How did I end up here? Why do I consider the shifter in the party to be my long lost brother? And like the, the, I've got literally 23 siblings and my mother takes care of us all. And we technically work for the cult of Rakdos, but we don't understand that we work for the cult of bondage, pain and, and, and blood orgies. So we're just, we're just circus hands that go up uh, ahead of time and set up the stages and give this whole big thing. Megan said, I am the prophesized princess that will defend the green dragon and save the world. Fuck. And these are the two that lived. Yeah. Now I am sitting at a point in my campaign where they're the only two that are left. And we just left it on a huge cliffhanger where Lolf showed up and the party was split. Um, one character's captured and Dan's character is hiding where no one can get to him. And Megan's character escaped with everybody else. She's going to be away for the next month. And she's like, well, if I can be honest, my character wouldn't sit still and become a background player. My character would go rescue the only remaining friend that has been traveling with her for the last four months. She has nothing left to live for. She found out that her prophecy was a false flag. She found out that her best friend was murdered by this false hydra, and she can't even remember half of the shit that they were best friends about. She needs to get this character back. So we play on Sundays. Tomorrow night on Friday, I've got Megan and Dan coming over to play a special episode to bring their characters together because he is a, I love everybody and I just want everyone to be happy, Furbolg bard. And she is a monk with rage issues. And they have built this backstory together in tier one that they never would have had before. And that is why it's important to, to not worry about the plot hooks that 
for the characters because they're going to get rewritten. Yeah. They're, it's important to say, what do the players want? The players, yeah. Dan, wants to make sure that the that the other characters see him as a friend and ally. And Megan wants everybody to know that she's the toughest one in the room. I, I don't have to I don't have to give them anything for a plot hook besides right. Dan's in danger and he's your friend, right? That that fulfills everything they need. You, you don't have to give them a plot hook. You don't have to say, oh, so-and-so from your backstory showed up and they're pulling you in this. And oh, it turns out that the big bad actually was manipulating your father the whole time. And oh, Bob, no, you don't need to do any of that. So uh, I think it's important to say that up front because mm-hmm. I know a lot of DMs struggle with that. I see on the, again, the Cursor Strahd Reddit, the number of people who are like, oh, these are my five backstories. How do I weave them into Barovia? And the answer is with the Domain of Dread, you fucking don't. That's the point. For for your specific Domain of Dread, I would say there's a merchant ship named blank. Yes. There were, there were six people that are the crew. Give me a reason why you are on it. And yeah. And then at the beginning of session one, I narrate the captain knows that we'll lose five days if we go around the storm. But if we go through these mists and then you wake up on the shores of whatever. Right. And that, that's all you yeah. need. Is, is there a reason you're traveling from point A to point B? There is. Cool. It's on a boat and there's some mists. You wake up. The captain's confused about the stars because they're not there. Oh, look, there's a lighthouse and I'm using my lighthouse as my death house. Yep, perfect. Yeah. Oh, you lit the lighthouse? Cool. You've attracted the sea serpent. The sea serpent's attacking. Oh, no, we're going to be killed by the sea serpent. Oh, look at that. The corpse of a giant fucking dragon turtle is rolling by, scares off the sea serpent. There's the big bat. Oh, shit. Now the fleet's there. But, yeah, you don't need to find character, uh, you know, individuals from the backstories and weave them in. You can just make... I touched on it earlier. Oh, do your dark reflections as reflections of the characters. No. Don't do that. Make it agnostic and then pull them in. Yeah, and and give the players what they want, that feel from the beginning. They chose to be a barbarian because they wanted a flavor that is a barbarian. They yeah. chose to be a circle of spores versus a circle of the moon. They chose spores for a reason. Let them do that early on, and you can't do that in session one. You can't give them that plot hook that early. So just Figure out what the players are trying to get out of D and D. Some some people want beer and pretzels. Some people want heartache, right? Yeah. And uh, and hopefully they all get on the same page. But I've never known that to happen. <laughs> I've I've never seen it to happen. No. no. Um. So that's uh. Yeah. When it comes to bringing them all together, honestly, you have kind of two options with it. One is, do you? Let them explore the wilderness first, or do they get to a town right away and understand they're somewhere they shouldn't be? Right. Do they find the clues in tier one that slowly, wait a minute, those constellations are wrong, right? Like that kind of shit. Or do they walk into a tavern and there's nobody there and it happens to be the ghost town or like, and they find the map of where they are? Like, how do they, how do they get introduced to the domain? So uh, for this one in particular, I mean, this one in particular, I would say I would do what I just laid out. Lighthouse as your death house gets you from level one to level two or level three. Uh, and then you get picked up by the fleet. Yeah. And then the go. fleet, someone kind of on the fleet, I would go with somebody who's loosely friendly. You're not getting picked up by the pegheads because they're just going to kill your fucking players. And then you're going to have to deal with shit. Yeah. Uh, somebody friendly who then sort of explains, oh, yeah, we're going to so-and-so. We're going to the next town. Oh, you're new. They're going to want to meet you. And then that 
forces that introduction to the Dark Lord. Um, and so I guess the uh, the last two things from kind of what I had that I wanted to touch on that I see a lot of people kind of asking questions about are uh, the prophecies. And I, I have difficulty with prophecies because my players always interpret prophecies as plot armor. Hey, the prophecy <laughs> said, I'm the one who's going to do this. I'm invulnerable. I can do whatever the fuck I want. And my, my players, I've drilled at home. There are two kinds of prophecy. Yeah. destiny and fate your destiny is to step forward and be the savior of the land and live up to your father's name and wield the sword of whatever that is how your life should go right will you see your destiny through and have it become your fate or will you go astray will you not yeah. make it that far right the gods say this is your destiny but it's up to you to determine your fate and that is how i, I would literally have your your prophecy character whoever your madam eva is sit there and go hey look yeah this is plot armor that's great i have bad news for you <laughs> so my madam eva yeah i one the reason i run cursor Stroud so much is i love playing madam eva i think i like to think i do a good madam eva um but yeah i always inform them i always i, I always massage it you are the pebble that starts the avalanche you might not make it to the bottom no you you are going to start someone's going to finish it it might be you it might be somebody else and really drive home as the dm i'm not going to kill you your fucking stupid decisions are going to kill you that's your own goddamn fault so uh the thing that i've done see i love prophecies i play with them all the time i literally just introduced the three greek fates as um, triplet hmm. girls that are blind that uh, sometimes speak in unison and know things they shouldn't know. Um, and so, and everyone's very scared that my, my players have figured out that I named them after the three fates, but they're like, are they hags? What's happening here? Mm, but yeah. they need, they need to interact with these, these triplets and they're all like 15 years old. So right. they're, they want to, they eat too much and they want to talk about ridiculous, stupid shit. And like, to tell us the story of the, and not like, I don't undermine them when I say ridiculous, stupid shit, just unimportant things, right? Mm -hmm. Their their scope is different than everybody else's. Um, but every time that I ask them for anything, do you have this? It's going to impact now that they gave up one ration, you will run out of rations later. The fates are actually mm -hmm. impacting the shit that's happening. And so they know that's going on. At the same time, they've got these runic god magic tattoos on their arms and they know that it's letters that spell a thing. But they just lost a bunch of people, and the survivors felt agonizing pain as their runes shifted and changed and warped their flesh and became new runes because their fates are different now. And that's the kind of shit that I would have. Like, if there's a scroll that says, the five of you will, will do the thing and save the people and do the whatever, I would have a picture of the five of them at the top. And then when one of them dies, it that fades away, and a new image shows up. Right. right so you are not you are not the best you're just the best we got yeah yeah you're you're starting a path yeah who knows who's gonna finish it hopefully it's you uh and i really hope it's you because introducing backup characters in a domain of dread is a pain in the ass uh and is is you know something every dm has to consider uh but oh i would ask them i would ask them outright for their new character how did you drown? When and why? For mine, absolutely. Yes, that's perfect. Yeah. Um, hold on. Writing that down as well. How did you drown? 
and then they just say even if they drown in a bathtub when suddenly they once they've they've given up they can feel the water filling their lungs and and they're they're falling like into the depths of the dark of the of the ocean or into the bottom of the bathtub suddenly there's a spark in their head they raise up they take a deep breath and find themselves on a beach and how do all of the locals refer to adventurers oh you're one of the drowned yeah i'm sorry wait are there others are what do you mean i, I haven't drowned oh yeah, you're one of the drowned and that's another cool thing that curse of Strahd does it's really really subtle is there's a funeral procession that's a bunch of ghosts right and i've always flavored it that those are the heroes that have tried this in the past and died. We're in an infinite loop. So, like, at the at the end of the day, you drown. And when one of the characters dies, if you can recover the body, burial at sea. So, so my players in Curse of Strahd have seen some of their character, their previous characters in that march. Cool. So, yeah, Good. They, uh, they've seen them go by. Um, I had a, a, a player who did a fantastic job. Uh, building up her character she was a warlock tiefling but she had started as a halfling and when she went warlock by accident she became a tiefling nice and uh yeah she saw her the the other players did not know that when the ghost procession went by and there was this halfling ghost who seemed to be screaming at them as she was dragged along by the rest they didn't really pick it up um i would uh Anybody listening, I would say that if you really want a really creepy ghost procession, there was an episode of the HBO show Carnival where they went to battle. Yes, you are the only person I've met out in the wild that has actually seen this show. Fantastic show. Fantastic. I wish it had an ending. God, oh yeah. No, Clancy Brown. Uh, yeah, yeah. Not, not him there. Yeah, Clancy Brown portrays a character in the uh, cartoon show The Venture Brothers as the Red Death. <laughs> yeah that's my Strahd that's nice. who I play as Strahd <laughs> and it's it's phenomenal he's I love that man um but yeah Carnival if you're going to do a Domain of Dread watch that show and you will get a feel for just uh pain and misery and uh difficult stagnation Ugh. but um so Dark Lord introduction I'm gonna I'm gonna pivot here um I know you've said before on some of your other shows, uh, you want the big bad to be showing up in the first couple of episodes so they know who it is. Yep. So I wanted to kind of pick your brain. How do you introduce a Dark Lord in a way that does not show too much interest in the party? Like, you don't have Straw drop a note and say, hey, come visit me, you're interested, because he's... He's the Lord of all Barovia. He's seen hundreds, thousands of adventurers come and go as hundreds of years. He doesn't give a shit. Strahd doesn't care about the adventurers until they get in the way of him saving Irina. Yes. So yeah. using that model, and that's one of the good things that Curse of Strahd does. But yeah. using that model, your players are going to be, what, level one? They are barely commoners. Like, they, they might as well be. They're, like the strongest man in the bar but uh, there are right. lots of bars <laughs> so yeah so they're just going to be in the procession of people to provide tribute and maybe they sit there and panic and that's the first npc they run into who says look here's the tribute you need to give and hands it to them and says you owe me but i'll yeah. get you through this and then they get face to face they provide the tribute and you just narrate the cutscene for them and your Dark Lord is disinterested. And as they're leaving, the Dark Lord becomes interested in an NPC 
for good or for bad, and interacts in a big, scary show of power one way or the other. So your players go, holy shit, we just sidestepped something big. Yeah. I wouldn't have that show of power before they meet. That needs to be after. Because if it's before, they'll try to roll initiative, right? Well, so I think I agree. I completely agree. You want to avoid a situation where your your players decide, I'm going to try combat, I'm going to try a challenge, I'm going to try a joke, and then this person's going to fucking kill me. Uh, but, I mean, that's as it's easy enough to do where... Everyone stands in a long ass line, and a priest comes by and touches them each on the forehead and casts hold person. It is. I, for my particular one, uh, I, I mentioned earlier, I want, I think that something that uh, Dai Fang, my Dark Lord, would be desperate for is information from the outside world about the Kraken. So when they're introduced, uh, or oh, we've, we've discovered a new the drowned. We have to report this. We have to push you forward so she, they can ask you, do you know? But to do that display of power, display of uh, strength that they don't argue with, I mentioned earlier, I would have my players enter a lighthouse. And when they light the lighthouse, fuck, the sea serpent showed up. And they're level two. The sea serpent is going to destroy them. And you have this almost Kurgan Ramirez Highlander scene of they're in a lighthouse tower. There's a thing wrapping around it. It's crumbling. It's fighting. And then as the corpse drifts by, almost casually, the Dark Lord annihilates that threat and just keeps. And it's like, oh, that thing that was threatening our lives, they didn't even blink about killing it. As as Dave likes to say, there's always a bigger fish. In this case, almost literally. Right. So I think introducing your players into a situation where the Dark Lord has an introduction because they're interested in a piece of information, but they're not actually interested in the characters is good. And then also, it's almost a save. Hey, the Dark Lord saved you casually from some death thing. Not, and Strahd sends you a letter and says, I want to have yeah. dinner. I'm interested in you and blah, 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 blah. Because, okay. I feel like, I feel like the... The corpse of the dragon turtle floats by in the background for like four or five rounds and then suddenly stops. Yeah. And then there is a light from a structure on its back or the fogs part and you can see a shadow of a a figure, uh, you know, that's standing there in the moonlight or whatnot Mm -hmm. that raises their hand and suddenly the sea serpent is sushi. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. but that's, it's got to be from a distance. So like even the, wait a minute. That wouldn't that be this spell, but the range is only 60 feet and they did it at 600, right? Like yeah. that yeah. level of you could also telegraph the mummy lord shit if you wanted to cast disintegrate because you gave that to your mummy lord or insect plague. So the like swarms come up and eat this thing alive or whatever. Yeah. Drive that that the clues early, right? Yeah. Or or even it wasn't even targeting the sea serpent, it was targeting the lighthouse. And the sea serpent got in the way and just fucking destroyed the light. Yeah. Something about that. But I I think the introduction of the Dark Lord should be not necessarily ignorant of the players and the characters, but just completely uncaring. I don't give a shit. Disinterested needs to be the the name of the game, for sure. Yes. Hey, Um, survive a couple of weeks, and then maybe I'm curious. I would even say disinterested um, there because of the paranoia. Nothing they say or do is going to be important until they get the first canopic jar. Yes. So they will 
feel the presence of the Dark Lord. They will have visions and dreams of what's happened in the past. They will get to talk to ghosts and populations, and they will always know what the Domain of Dread is about, but they won't really get that that face-to-face fuck-you moment. Like, we are now enemies until they get the first canopic jar. So I almost think, like, they got to come across that by accident, or they've got to be put on that path by a, an NPC on purpose, right? And they almost need to be, they need to be warned. The second that the Dark Lord figures this out, you are a target. Mm-hmm. And when I say you're a target, I mean you're fucked. Hide. Hide I, this. I almost feel like you've got the problem of, if she knows when one of the jars has been taken, why doesn't she go right after that person? And right. so you need to, there has to be something that is like, if you fill the jar with seawater, yeah, then it, then she cannot sense it any longer. So you yeah. pick it up in whatever the chamber is and you have it and, she, and the sea turtle shifts and starts moving towards that direction. And then they get to the shore, fill it with seawater and fuck off. And then two days later, she shows up and says, where's my jar? You you always need to stay ahead of it. You yeah. always need to stay ahead of the bow wave of her corpse because she's figured it out. Now, I uh, I treated in Curse of Strahd, my favorite moment in D- D&D, all of D&D and all of playing is what I'm going to talk about now. Uh, I treated the, uh, the Sun Sword and Curse of Strahd the same way. Hey, the second this gets known... And the word get back gets back to Strahd. That's it. Everything else gets put to the side. Yeah. This is focus. And so my players got the Sun Sword in Valakai, and they went toe to toe with the vampire spawn in Valakai. And I looked at the stat box and said, "Hey, you got above a ten intelligence. I'm going to play you intelligently." And the wielder of the Sun Sword chased after a vampire spawn who was trying to escape because they were going to report to Strahd, hey, they've got a weapon of sunlight. And long story short, they got themselves separated. The vampire spawn turned at at bay and took the fucking sun sword away from the unconscious person. They got it back, but the gasp from my party of the vampire spawn is going in for the kill on this rogue. No, no, no. They scoop up the sun sword and they dash into the woods. And these are good, like key moments to do as well with the canopic jars. Like they come back yes. and find they're gone. They, they've been raided, right? Like there's some having MacGuffins doesn't mean that like you're the only people going after them, as the Indiana Jones movies has taught us over and over. Yes, over again. yes, yes. Um, fuck, that's a that's a lot of fun. The that and it brings me back to the idea that she's got spies. Her paranoia is enough that like. Maybe even one of the quest givers is one of her spies, right? Yeah. To, to oh, see, that's fantastic. You know, it, hey, you got two of the canopic jars. This person knows what the third one is. You got to go talk to them. They're working for her to see if you're actually capable of doing it. And they're going to double cross you at the last minute, trap you in and flood the chamber or whatever where where you are. Yeah. Like that, yeah. that cave of wonders double cross. So yeah. um, I guess there's one last thing on this list before we we wrap. Okay, two last things. Yeah. First of all, there's an, a, you, you have a list, uh, or sorry, I put on the breakdown um, about magic items and the economy. I would not worry about the economy. Yeah, ig- ignore that. I wrote that. And then I looked back at the actual... Uh, Van Richten's guide that said, ignore that. So yeah, you you like it's it's good enough to know that it works, that it exists. 
and I would just keep it like a domain of dread has to be low magic item. Yeah. yeah. Just otherwise there's too much shit popping off unless you're doing whatever that, that domain was that is about the, the high magic. Uh, I'm trying to remember now that's falling apart at the scene. Archon. Is it Archon? Darkon's one of the ones Darkon. falling apart at the uh, Lich that has departed. Yes, and, then... and the whole area is falling apart and getting ripped apart by the seams at a cosmic level. So, awesome. yeah. so yeah, I would absolutely put lots of magic items in there, but that's rare. I wouldn't do it normally. No. Um, but to know the other one that's on here is Nightmares. You've got Phenomena um, to list out, and you've got some pretty detailed Nightmares. Yeah. Why Nightmares? Why did you latch on? Because you latched on hard to Nightmares. So that's a holdover from curse of strahd and i felt it was good in the death house hey you're taking you're going to sleep here it was an early introduction to everything's terrible everything's horrible here and it is creeping into your mind it was one of those things that i wanted to use to really reinforce this is not going to be for your character pleasant and so uh, i feel hey you're here you're in a domain of dread this is a reflection of the dark lord uh and their psyche is imprinting on everything around. Why not include a table of nightmares? And the, the table I have there is uh, the one I use for Curse of Strahd. And I'll tell you why you don't use it is because I gave one of my players a literal anxiety attack middle game. And we had to stop because uh, apparently I hit unknowingly too close to home uh, with one of my nightmares. But you, as a DM, you're always looking for immersion. Yeah. And when you're in combat or you're in a social situation or even an exploratory one, your player is going to stop listening and they're going to be looking at their character sheet. They're going to be looking at what I can do, their spell list, their inventory, whatever. So Nightmares gives you that canvas, that opportunity to say, hey, put your character sheet down, listen to my voice. Now close your eyes. And this is happening while you're asleep. Your, your character is perfectly safe. However, and then you can walk that player down that scary path or whatever, and all the other players are listening and really drive home. This is a domain of dread. Uh, and for me, the interesting thing was I did that to one player and then the rest of the player said, nope, we're not going to sleep. We're staying awake for reasons. <laughs> and OK, you're all staying awake all night in dread house or uh, death house. Fine, whatever. You've got such evocative language because you scripted out for what is it? Six of them. Yeah. so far um and you've got a, a random table of 20 and it's stuff like it's funny the names of them are so like unassuming laughter approaches mold ghost lights right and then it gets worse and worse as you go screaming skinless child like jesus yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is phenomenal that's great here's my suggestion because i use nightmares in mine as well the closer mm -hmm. they get to um to the goddess of death the worse their nightmares are the more that they get corrupted as well. So um, here's how I do it. And it's different than how you do it. I like your method and your, again, I would love to read one of these out, but they're so freaking long. And yeah. we're, we're running yeah, long already. Yeah. But but they're so good. These are whole cutscenes, right? For people to not just listen to, but breathe in, right? Like they're there to experience this and you got away with words it's it's really good well thank you yeah uh, um my the way that i build it is i do i mine their backstory and their backstory is, will change but i get like essentially d6 table of 
a location or a person or an item or and that location can be home or the school where I learned my wizarding technique or my favorite teacher. And I'll send out at the beginning a questionnaire really quickly about who, besides your parents, who's the most influential person in your life? Who do you like the least, right? Like who is your rival growing up? Um, and so I throw all this stuff out and I get a bunch of answers back. Then I build a D6 table. And then I build a D6 table that's based on my Dark Lord or whatever, like the, the tragedies that happened as well whether it's an armada being sunk or um, a city being flooded or uh, sacrifices being happened or, or like going on, right? Like um, dragon turtles being ripped apart or a lineup of people on the beach ready, uh, ready to walk into the water to die or like whatever it is, all these horrific things from her backstory. And then I add in a handful of other details that are based on the campaign that they've done so far. Yeah. And then I roll dice and I roll dice as if I'm casting bones. And each one of the tables is a different color of die. And they're all like D6 tables, D4 okay. tables, really small. And um, uh, but I start off with a D20 table on a one to 15. You're going to have a bad dream on a 16 to 19. You're going to wake up screaming on a 20. You've been sleepwalking. And one of your items at random is destroyed from your backpack. Wow. Now, normally, I keep that down to, like, the pot and pan that they, they chose at the, the Explorer's Guide at the beginning, right? Your six, your six canisters of oil that you took for some reason. Your yeah, bulb. Yeah. Yeah. You, you've, you've been sitting there snapping candles, right? Like yeah. that kind of shit. So yeah. just enough to make it unnerving that they would have been destroying their own shit. Um, and then I roll where I cast the bones. So what it's... Uh, the first one is uh, you're in a location that you recognize from earlier in this campaign and the and this person from your backstory is there and they're talking with you and they seem, and then I roll in a random table, happy, angry, sad, but a lot of it's very simple or, and they're not angry at you. They're just mad. You go over to talk to them and whatnot. Yeah. But as, and when this happens, the world turns dark and waters begin to swell upward and it yeah. turns the the normal that they would normally be dreaming about is now invaded by the will of the dark lord reliving their horror that's fantastic and it, the i believe the definition of grotesque and i'm <laughs> wildly wrong on this uh but grotesque is you know it's it's 99% normal and the 1% is wrong and that 1% is what's bothering you something is getting you um so i do my I do my nightmares as descriptive as I can because I find I only need to do them once. Mm -hmm. And then the next time I say, you have a nightmare. Would you like me to read it out? And all of my players say, no, 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 no we're good. We're, and they have that flashback. But I think what you're saying of, of doing that, that table and also my nightmares are agnostic of the dark Lord. In this case, I, I just pulled the ones I've used previously as examples. And yeah, I think it would be valuable to, you could build on them. You have a dream. You're talking to somebody. You don't really understand it. Next, you have a dream. You're talking to somebody. It's not very clear. They seem to be carrying fishing gear. The next one, oh, they're carrying fishing gear. The water is rising around your feet. And you can kind of build on that. And you can almost use that as, if you if you wanted to, to drive them to the the, uh, the prophet, Solaton, in my case. But um also the the slow building horror of it too. Like the first time you're you're on the pier and you're talking, the second time you're laughing, the third time 
It's a manic laughter and there's panic in their eyes. The fourth time they're screaming. The fifth time they're they're grasping at your jacket as the water rises around them and they're panicking, trying to climb up your body. And then on the sixth time, they're pushing you under. Yes. And if you really want to screw, and as all DMs do, we really want to screw with our players. Uh, if you really want to screw with your player, oh, you're all going to sleep? Everybody roll whatever. Oh, you rolled this? Okay. We're going to take a five-minute break. When you come back, I'm going to describe your nightmare. Go get a drink, go to the bathroom, bio break, whatever you want to call it. When you get back, I'm going to describe your nightmare and let them think about it. Uh, yeah, no, I love it. Uh, also, if when when you have your D6 table of the people that are important to them, like in their backstory, five of them are from the backstory or four of them are from the backstory. One of them is an NPC that they've been interacting with. And the last one is one of the other party members. Mm. Hold on. Yep. Because that right there will fuck with them. This person had a dream that I died. What? <laughs> that That is a nightmare that gives to two people. What's also interesting, it, it creates, as much as you want to not create party tension, but you do want to create party tension for your own entertainment and for everything else, the, the, the narrative, does the person tell the other one? Are they now looking for it? Are they worried that this is the prophecy? Is it going to change the way they act later? So, yeah, no, that's fantastic. Now, what I was doing the last campaign, and I mean, it's a, it's an extra step that you don't have to do, but like, I was looking at the fact that I had a gnome investigator and uh, a rogue arcane trickster. Um, uh, yeah. I was a half elf. I had a dragonborn um, wizard uh, and then a uh, human paladin. And when I was rolling out these nightmares, I thought to myself, okay, so the paladin has divine magic. So I will be rolling a D8 and um or sorry uh it was a d10 and every time it's a one they get a nightmare yeah every every time they go to bed um for the two arcane which were the uh wizard and the um arcane trickster i was rolling um d12s if they roll a one they get a nightmare and then for the uh gnome investigator who just does not believe in this shit and is pragmatic and whatnot it was a d20 and if they roll a one they get a nightmare but then he took a level in Warlock and proved that there was a gr- that there was um, hags that he had made a deal with, and so like the magic was in him, and he w- he could hear people's voices and stuff, and so he was suddenly very in tune with this. And now it was rolling a d6, so a much higher percent chance to roll a one. Uh, I think he, he, one that's fantastic is to loop in that level, and that that's very good. Uh, I would never have thought of that, and I'm I'm genuinely impressed. Uh, which I don't give away with my dead flat affect. Um, <laughs> but uh, it gave me the idea that maybe also you, the players don't want to listen to the nightmares. You're you're going to be playing on anxieties. You're going to be playing on genuine fears, and you're going to go beyond impacting their character and impacting the human being playing the character, the player. <laughs> you don't want to traumatize them for no reason. You don't want to introduce difficulty to them for no reason. So maybe, at least in my case, Maybe introduce some unifying element. There's a ghost trying to get through with a concept, and the only way they can do it is a nightmare. Solaton, my quintessent. The only way he can get through is there's some unifying aspect of the nightmare that, you know, oh, and on the wind you hear blank. And on the wind you hear blank. Oh, that's weird. I had a nightmare. Oh, I heard that too. Wait a minute. I think that that's where you get that table of did they just wake up were they screaming in their sleep were they sleepwalking were there anybody else whoever's on watch because you know there's always someone on watch will hear them saying a speaking a clue 
saying soliton for the first time. We've never right. heard that word before. What does it mean? Right? right. And then that'll make them go, okay, I'm willing to endure this nightmare to get the clues. Right. So, and you could have a random table of clues. Actually, I myself as a DM would craft out what clues because that can push them in an appropriate direction. And you're also checking the box for prophecies with this as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'll be honest, as a DM, I lie every time I say I'm rolling randomly. I've I've planned it out. I've got the idea ahead of time. I don't fucking roll randomly. You're you're. This is. Ha- I mean, when it comes to plot, when it comes to things to advance it, I don't roll randomly. And I know that's a big problem with uh, like Curse of Strahd. People roll randomly for the Traka deck, and they end up with just garbage. Uh, I, I don't do that. So I am a big believer of any time that I roll randomly for the plot, I do it at the end of a session so I can walk away and figure out how the fuck does that work over the next week or two. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I will often roll randomly, and I roll about ninety percent of my dice in front of my players with the table on, like the random table on the physical table where they can see it, and I will drag my finger down the table so they can see that this is truly random. Um, so I uh, I play primarily online, uh, yeah. just because we're separated by hundreds of miles, so it's difficult. But I almost never hide my roles, so the the, the players know the brutality is what they have earned. So yeah. that's yeah. the game. Why roll dice if you're not gonna if you're not gonna follow them, right? So if, if but you don't that being said, dice, write a book. Yeah, we'll do a collaborative narrative. Uh, yeah, but that that being said, if you roll dice like with character creation. You get what you pay for. If you rolled a bunch of sixes, you fuck. You got sixes, right? Yeah. Like that's that's just it. I mean, there's fail safes and whatnot involved, but I tend not to leave plot up to random circumstance or or chance. No. Uh, every once in a while, for something like a prophecy or a, a cryptic riddle to put them on the right level, or who's gonna someone is gonna get this information. Everyone roll an investigation check or who's going to be the one that gets the dream first, but it will apply to everyone, right? So it takes the randomness out of it and it makes it just the next plot point. Um, I learned that from Terry, as a matter of fact, who, um, you know, in Curse of Strahd, there's gallows that you walk by at one point, you can, and one of the characters can see their own corpse. Yeah, just outside of the village of Barovia before you hit Sir Balls. He did did that to me. And then, and I reacted so strongly to it and was so like invested in it that he made a point to add that to just about everywhere we went there were gravestones with my name on it there were um uh coffin makers uh that were uh sizing it up to exactly my height come here for a minute i just need you to to stand and And he really laid that out that you are going to die you specifically and so like that is something that i learned from him that he took Something that was kind of random could have happened to anybody, and he made it not random. Yeah, uh, yeah, and I to a level I do that in my Curse of Strahd games. If you don't cleanse the Death House, it follows you. Nice. So, oh, you're you're camping by the side of the road between Yester Hill and the Amber Temple. When you wake up in the distance, there seems to be a lovely two story house, and there seem to be children in front of it waving to you on the side of the road. It, it, uh, it, my it, players have never gone back in, but they have been stalked by that house. But yeah, no, that's that's fantastic. To uh, it, I'm gonna say, I hope he listens, uh, Terry. From everything I've heard, amazing at what he does, especially given the the 
limited experience he had being thrown into that did a phenomenal job from what I can tell. And Terry, kudos to you. So Terry does two things better than just about anybody else. He listens to his players and he riffs with them. And he is absolutely willing to improv in the moment to give you what you want for now. And, but he is so good at then at putting you back on track, right? Like (laughs) all of his brilliant genius moments are the, the, the little details that are so memorable and he doesn't let you walk too far off the railroad, right? Yeah. But what you do on that railroad and how you interact with it, whatnot, he is the master getting right in your face and, and being there with you for it. Yeah. So Terry, you sound like a great guy. Love to meet you. If you're ever down my way where it's hot as hell because the world's on fire, I'll buy a beer. So <laughs> how warm is it right now? Uh, it is uh midnight 30 here and it's probably 70 or 80 degrees in freedom units so i don't know the uh Jeez, that is disgusting so is... i grew i grew up in a place where it was routinely over 100 and then i deployed to the middle east uh perfect for me no problem i live in a temperate rainforest where it's not even muggy yeah our heat is a little bit different it's a, just a little bit like i'm in a rainforest but it's temperate it's I'm never too thirsty. I'm never too sweaty and hot and muggy. I remember stepping out into the Maryland heat for the first yeah. time. I was going to say, you're here in August. You're fucked. Oh, I I did it at the end of June, the first yeah. time I was ever there. And I had to walk three blocks from the hotel to the car rental place. And mm-hmm. I, it looked like I got out of the out of a swimming pool when I walked in there. I was... Uh... I was on a ship that lost two of its air conditioners out of four uh, mm-hmm. while we were in off the coast of Iran. It was 105 degrees uh, Fahrenheit, obviously, inside at night. Uh, and you had to have people that came by and woke you up in your bed to do heat stress surveys every two hours. The paint was literally melting off the ship. So That is gross. And you wonder how people just live their lives there. Like, it's the... The cradle of humanity is right there. But that's where people came from. How did we fucking survive? Not a clue. Yeah. Anyway, um, are we good for this episode? I mean, there's always more to do, but is there anything? I, mean, I think we are. I mean, Domains of Dread are such an interesting thing. They're a little microcosm. They're a wonderful thought experiment. I encourage every DM to go out there and try and build a domain of dread, whether or not you're going to use it or not. Because when you look at all the little restrictions and the difficulties and the hurdles, that is something you can use to improve your own game in your homebrew. If you can overcome it in a domain of dread and you can facilitate your players having a good time in a demi plane of hell, then your, you know, halflings building a catapult to launch a cow over a church or whatever in your high fantasy game will be that much more rewarding and enriching. If if I can be perfectly honest, I will use lots of these little bits and pieces for just world building in general or for building just any villain. Doesn't have to be a dark lord that's cursed, Right. right? Any sort of any sort of like set piece NPC, what do they want? What happened? What was their upbringing? Like the questions in this are good questions. There's not enough. And they didn't tell us why we're asking these questions in the first place. They, they didn't. And I feel like a point they really should have hammered on, uh, which kind of, when we were originally talking, I had a different topic entirely to discuss, but you covered it in a different episode very well with Dan about, uh, the stages of a hero, what defines a hero, backstories. And I bought several of the books you were talking about, and they're wonderful. Oh, good. And they really should, in this, discuss, hey, remember, your Dark Lord does not know they're a Dark Lord. In their mind, they're a hero. 
Yep. And I feel like when you're developing a villain or you're developing anybody, everybody believes they're the hero of their own story. And whether it's a small thing that they're the hero of or a big thing, that's going to be the all-encompassing issue of their life is, how did I make this a statement about my heroism because my existential dread demanded that I made a statement that I was here? And Uh, that's it, like the, the concept of legacy. Um, right. and what that legacy is going to be. I was going to say, when it comes to villains, yeah, it, it's easy to say that every villain sees themselves as a hero, and if that's the only metric that you operate by, that is perfectly fine. That is such a good way to think about villains. But the scariest villains that I ever throw in my games are the ones that realize what they're doing is evil and just want you to feel what they feel. And at that point, that legacy that that they're thinking about is not, look at me doing this good thing. It's at least my suffering isn't suffering alone. At so, least someone else will see or feel what I see and feel. Yes, yes. So it is, you know, the, the villain that is the one we all recognize and is difficult to deal with is the one that believes they're a hero. The villain that is truly dangerous and really gets to us is the artist who is in pain and is struggling with the fact that there is no medium of expression that is perfect enough for them and the only one they found is i am going to show my expression i'm going to make you feel what i feel and it is going to be horrific it is like uh van gogh van gogh was tormented because he could not express himself Mm. He was the master of what he did. He was the best at what he did. And even at the pinnacle of his art, he felt this wasn't enough to make somebody else understand what I'm going through. Now you make that a villain and that's terrifying. And but, that's that's what the torture chamber in Castle Ravenloft is. Yeah. Right. Like there are bits and pieces of that littered around, but that's I, I have I've got a handful of examples like Hannibal Lecter knows he's evil. He doesn't give a fuck, right? right. Um, and he wants, he wants, the scary thing about him is he needs Clarice to understand too, right? When, like, the natural born killers, um, Mickey and Mallory, yeah, they're fucking evil and they know it, but they're here for the ride because they're in it together and they're feeling this together. Yeah. I wonder if they had been separated, would they have gone on that spree? Right. And I so mean. that idea of join me in my own personal evil hell is a powerful motivator. Um, but to bring it back to the domains of dread, that's good for a lieutenant, not for a dark lord. Yes. Yes. Completely agree. So I think that's all for our discussion on building a domain of dread. That was a quick hour. Yeah. <laughs> thank you robert for choosing this topic um for workshopping your homebrew and for supporting the patreon happy to do it I, uh, I thoroughly enjoy everything you put out and i'm glad to be able to contribute any way i can well we appreciate it and of course i will be talking to you almost daily it seems like on the discord as well yeah yeah um for everyone else thank you for listening to another episode of the it's a mimic podcast if you'd like to support us we have a donate button on our website www.itsamimic.com a store with some It's a Mimic merch, and a Patreon. This episode and others can also be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and most other podcast apps. Thanks again for listening to It's a Mimic, where you never know what you're going to get.
So I've got to save this incredibly long episode um, on this uh, complete potato of a machine. Yeah. So I should uh, sign off here pretty quickly and get that yeah. saved. Get that. Yeah. But the whole deal with this level of the Patreon is if you're still interested, if you still want to support that at us at this level, we do this every three months. Just yeah. To talk about. Think about yeah. it. Let me know. Yeah. No, I'm gonna try and come up with uh, another good one. I I thought I had a good one with character backstories, and I listened to one of your episodes, and you covered everything I was gonna talk about. So you you bastards got to me uh, before <laughs> it. Uh, I'll I'll admit I was surprised that the question about my name of Terror Pickle did not come up. Um, I. What didn't want to necessarily out you because I didn't yeah. necessarily out the others um, that yeah, are yeah. supported for this. So, um, but uh, I'm thoroughly curious. So, uh, well, two things. One, yeah, again, back to uh, Fern Gully, my brain just misfires a lot. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, a friend of mine was asking what they should name their cat. And they had like Socrates and Galileo because they were a philosophy major. And right. I said, well, clearly you should name it uh, Pickles the Terror Squid. <laughs> and it just it just popped in my head pickles the terror squid great name for a cat and they said no we're not gonna go with that and i signed into a video game some time later and i was like oh pickles the terror squid i'm gonna do that too many characters Hair all right it is hair pickle it is and uh you i don't think you know this on uh reddit we've conversed i'm also shatner pants oh that's you there that's we go me. yeah and uh in college i was not I was playing some video game about giant robots because I'm a big Mecha fan. And uh, somebody was talking about they'd uh, brought a girl home and she was so drunk, she'd shat in her panties. And I heard that. And all I heard was Shatner panties. And I said, oh, Shatner panties. Is that what Shatner wears under his Shatner pants? And I was yeah. referring to William Shatner. Of course, yeah. No fucking idea what I was talking about. And his little Shatner pants, she's like, oh, that's kind of a funny thing. All right, I'll be, sh I'll, I'll be shatner pants and stuff so 